0: Hello, listeners. Uh, this is David Blakesley talking to you in my capacity as editor of this particular podcast episode. Uh, the program that you're about to listen to had a little bit of a disruption towards the end of the show, where uh, one of our participants, Aaron West, has a uh, local area was hit by a power outage. And interrupted his ability to participate in the rest of the call. So Aaron and I got together another night or two later after his power had been restored and we recorded the two of the segments that he kind of missed out on in the original recording. So just to simplify matters, I we recorded that session and I've just kind of inserted it right at that juncture. So there may be some verbiage that doesn't make sense uh, because we hadn't figured it all out, but You'll get the point and uh, you'll get to hear everything that Aaron and I got to talk about in our little mini conversation as well as the the input from the other guests uh, in the rest of the show. So anyways, that's just my little explanation of why things are a little bit out of sequence, but enjoy the program. Listeners, I am David Blakesley, and this is the Criterion Cast Favorites of 2022 episode. This is a show that we've been doing for a number of years now. I should probably have counted them up before I started talking, but this is like what our 13th in a row that we've been doing these since uh, 2010. We have had a Favorites of the Year episode, uh, and I am the one person who's been on all of them. So it's a, a distinct honor that I uh, kind of hold. Dear and precious to my heart, and uh, it's a real great privilege to uh, welcome several of our guests from years past back onto this episode, uh, where we each share kind of our own personal takes on our favorite uh, Criterion Collection releases, physical media releases uh, of the preceding year. So we always record this in uh, kind of late December, get it ready for the New Year's twist and turn, and uh, kind of a reveal of of kind of where we're coming from as far as our personal taste is concerned, uh, what we were most impressed by, and also just a chance to talk about the uh, various ins and outs and developments of the Criterion Collection as a as a kind of a cultural institution, you might say. So, uh, you know, we've had a, a pretty good process of planning and preparation for this. We actually had a pretty sizable panel lined up, but due to a variety of... Uh, you know, just kind of real life events and availabilities and, and all of that. Uh, we're a little bit smaller in number than when we first originally set up to do this episode. So, voices that you've heard in the past, such as Scott and I, Trevor Barrett, uh, Jill Blake, and Arik Devins, were all hoping to join us, but weren't able to do that this year. So, you know, we wish them all the best, and we certainly look forward to their uh you know comments if they want to share some of their top picks when we get to that point but uh we do have a great panel and uh, so obviously with a little bit smaller size than uh than we had last year and maybe in some previous years' will give us a chance to unwind a little bit share our thoughts have some uh some good banter and chatter and i hope you all enjoyed listening in so let's uh get into introducing our guests we'll start with josh hornbeck josh hello from up there in seattle how's it going yeah
1: it's uh really great to uh, be here and uh, to be podcasting again so thanks for having me on it's uh, great to be back for a 2nd year doing the best of the year so this is uh exciting
0: Excellent. Yeah, we'll give you a chance. We're going to do a little kind of go-around and kind of talk about our opening takes uh, on the year in Criterion. But let's get the introductions out of the way uh, first. Uh, Aaron West from Criterion Now is here. Aaron, how's it going
2: today? Hey, David and, uh, and everybody else. Uh, great. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, when, when you said you'd been on all of these, I was trying to count how many I've been on. Um, and it's, it's a lot, but uh, not yeah. not 14. Yeah. Somewhere between 1 and 14. I think probably about seven or eight. But uh, yeah, looking forward to it. It's been a great year. We'll talk about that soon. And a uh, great year for Criterion, that is not a great year for everybody else.
0: Yeah, the year itself has been a mixed bag. We'll for <laughs> sure have a little bit to say about that. Uh, our third panelist uh, is Jordan Esso. Jordan, how are you doing from up there in the Pacific Northwest? You're out in Oregon these days, right? Yeah, that's right.
3: I'm in Wallport, Oregon, sort of mid-state here. And Happy to be on the line with all you guys. But I I would like to speak up a little bit for Scott and Arik and Jill and Trevor. You know, I know you didn't want to mention it, but that seniority that you sort of front-loaded, it was responsible for like an allocation of drink tickets that wasn't quite fair. And I I think that's what the walkout was about. (laughs)
0: Well, there you go, airing our dirty laundry.
3: <laughs>
0: but definitely, you know, I, I I definitely look forward to hearing from them, and uh, we will have a chance to catch up and connect with them all at, at different points in time. But uh, you know, we've got a pretty manageable panel, and we've had we've had panels of similar size in years past, so we'll keep the tradition rolling forward so yeah Josh Aaron and Jordan and me just the four of us today but I think we've got some pretty uh, fascinating picks I've had a chance to look over the list and uh, there's not a whole lot of overlap there's a little bit here and there but uh, our top threes are all pretty distinctive and I think they all reveal a little bit of the the personalities and the uh, and the taste that I've gotten to to know each of you by uh, through our online friendship and also, uh, in, in the case of me and Jordan, we've had a chance to meet face-to-face as well. We're looking forward to maybe someday having the same encounters with Aaron and Josh. But, uh, you know, definitely been an interesting year uh, in 2022. You know, we're still kind of in that recovery from pandemic mode. It feels just like there's been so much disruption, uh, unpredictability, instability uh, on, on all levels, on all fronts, economically, socially, culturally, politically, uh, even environmentally and, you know, current events uh, at all different levels. Just There's just a shakiness to so much that, that's going on. Uh, it's a, It's been a year of transition and adjusting and kind of finding our bearings after so many of the routines and uh, familiar, you know, stuff that you maybe just kind of take for granted or just think that's how life goes and that's how it is. Uh, a lot of that's been called into question. And so uh, as we kind of sharpen our focus on the, uh, on the world of cinema and, uh, uh, you know the kind of movies that you can bring home uh, on on Blu-ray disc or 4K or even DVD. Watch them, think about them, interact, and listen and hear what other people have to say about them, and and just you know kind of form it as part of our ongoing cultural diet. Uh, that's kind of what the purpose of this show is. You know, the Criterion Collection has gotten a lot of attention over the years as kind of a a, a standard bearer of some of the best uh, developments in the world of film. And uh, they've also taken their share of flack for that. Some people feel that their influence is outsized or maybe distorting or certainly has some blind spots. And I think that's where we can kind of get into the discussion about uh, what has the Criterion Collection done as as an arbiter of, um, you know, what makes for for important film, worthwhile, classic, and contemporary film? And so, I think I'd like to just kind of start with that, but also, you know, maybe just say also just a little bit of a personal catch up, especially since uh, there've been a number of you know folks who have listened to this program over the years. This particular edition of Criterion Cast, uh, I know we've got some friends who are out there. Uh, who are just kind of curious to know what's been happening in our lives uh we all of us have have had sort of different levels of activity online as far as our you know podcasting blogging or whatever we do uh and so for some listeners maybe it's been a while since you've heard from us so josh i'm going to start with you and kind of just kind of fill us in a little bit on yourself personally and maybe give us a little bit of a take on what you've been seeing happening with the criterion collection in
1: 2022 yeah well i uh Uh, ended up, uh, I had a sabbatical this year from work and uh, had three months that were supposed to be devoted to kind of some study and refreshment and uh, uh, kind of restoration, uh, but uh, ended up having uh, kind of my own health uh, take a downturn. And uh, so my sabbatical did not go the way I intended to. And in the midst of that, had uh, a move that was uh, not expected, and uh, uh, you know the the rental market out in the Seattle area is a little crazy, uh, and uh, so uh, my wife and I ended up uh, pooling together our uh, some of our savings and uh, bought a very small place out about two and a half hours north of Seattle, and so we're out in, pretty close to the Canadian border now in a small place. Uh, And so we spent most of the last half of the year moving. So there's been a a little hiatus in uh, the Criterion Channel Surfing podcast that was unexpected due to both health and uh, moving. And uh, we'll be resuming that. uh, uh, Actually, I think I'm recording with uh, Michael Hutchins uh, on the 2nd of January uh, to kind of get back into it as I'm, my health is starting to stabilize just a little bit. And uh, this is my first time podcasting, I think, in six months, mm. maybe. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's both exciting and also uh, been a, a challenging year. Uh, I know that's been that way for a lot of people. Um, you know, for, for me, I still uh, isolate. I still have uh, kind of health vulnerabilities that mean that I can't leave the pandemic behind me. So uh, I have to be really cautious and careful where I go. And uh, so it's uh, even as things open up, um, it still is a time where uh, I uh, have learned a lot about uh, kind of the disability movement and have been kind of educating myself and moving more into those spaces, mm-hmm. uh, into uh, kind of advocating for uh, uh, other people's um, rights uh, especially at work um, in spaces where uh, people are wanting to kind of move the move accessibility or kind of leave the accessibility that we gained during the pandemic behind as um, as people are wanting to move back to in-person spaces and one of my calls to the people in my workspaces is always to not forget those of us that uh, are still vulnerable. Um, so that's a lot of what I do in my day job is to yes. continue to advocate and to continue to help the people in my organization and the organizations that I support to um, to work on hybrid and uh, accessibility uh, options for those with disabilities even before the pandemic hit. So that's a lot of what I do and uh, it's it's been fun, but it's also uh, a lot of work. It's a lot of, uh, it's, it's draining at times and so, uh, Uh, I I think in the last month or two, I've been really kind of diving back into great film and great cinema. Uh, It's taken a long time. I know that Aaron can relate to this. Aaron and I have talked a little bit offline or uh, uh, off the air about how uh, when... uh, Online but offline. Sorry. Online but (laughs) offline. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. But we've talked a lot about how Kind of through both of our health challenges, uh, it's been it's been challenging to kind of really dig into some of the the great cinema that we love, and uh, I know I've turned a corner when I can really dig into to films that are meatier and can actually retain uh, the the work as well. So um, so for me that's been really exciting over the last little bit. For me, when I look at Criterion this year, um, uh, I think that while there aren't as many of the uh, kind of classic 60s and 70s um, European art house films that uh, drew me into Criterion to start with. Uh, I am finding so many other points of entry and so many other things to get really excited about with it, especially as they are leaning into this call for diversity uh, as they are bringing in more uh, female directors, more directors of color, as they are really um, broadening uh, and kind of breaking open the canon more. That was one of the things that I was really excited about with the channel is how they were Uh, highlighting uh, directors from so many different backgrounds and so many different countries and so many different um, uh, places. And um, they are now... I I never thought that that they would be able to replicate that uh, in their physical media side just because of rights issues and because of uh, how the physical media landscape looked at the time. But to see them actually... Doing that over the last couple of years, and to really lean into that this year has been just uh, so exciting uh, to see. And uh, I know my selections will uh, reflect that, and I know we we see that really across the board with the films that we're choosing this year as well. And uh, so for me, it's been uh, just uh, a really exceptional year in uh, Criterion uh, films, and uh, I. I just I love what they're producing and how they're continuing to take that mandate that they were given over the last few years to really consider uh, their place in uh, in film culture and to take it seriously and to um, think seriously about the ways that entrance into the Criterion Collection canonizes filmmakers and um, and I think they're doing that really. Uh, really beautifully
0: excellent well said and i'm very encouraged and glad to hear that you've got fresh episodes of criterion channel surfing uh on the docket there so so welcome back thank you (laughs) after after a half year off of podcasting i know it's something you enjoy you've got a gift for so it's really great to hear that that's uh Gonna be coming back uh, to our, our website, CriterionCast.com, and that you're you know that you've made this transition, and you certainly opened some some doors that I I know that we're all eager to talk about. So I'm gonna kind of hold my comments in response to what you've observed about the Criterion Collection in 2022, and kick it over to Aaron. So Aaron, how about you? What's been up uh, in your
2: world? Oh, not much. No, not much happened this year. <laughs> no. Um, well, first off, Josh, I'm super thrilled to be podcasting with you again. I'm glad that you've you know, recovered to a point where you can do this. Uh, speaking personally, I know this is what we love to do. This is not, does not feel like work to most of us. So I'm um, uh, thrilled you're back and, uh, and also worked out some of those other logistical issues um, and as far as the disability advocacy, um, we need to connect offline. Well, sorry, online, but offline. That's right, <laughs> because I, I, I have, have some lived experience there. Um, but yeah, Aaron West, and uh, yeah, hiatus is a, a key word, for, I think, for introductions this year. Um, I did have an illness; uh, it was COVID-related, just like uh, many others, and um, and it, it was unpleasant. Uh, you know, I, I don't want anybody to be bummed out. I think everybody has had their share of people that have had negative COVID experiences. So, um, uh, but the good thing is I am recovering. Uh, I had to take a hiatus for probably about five or six months. And it's just, yeah, well, I needed that six months or five, five or six months really to improve. And uh, then I, I did, uh, we've, we've come back and we've released a couple episodes and we actually, actually we're recording one tomorrow. Uh, so we, Expected to take or to get right back at it, but then we had some other health issues uh, between myself and Jill, uh, and, and also some family health issues. So, I do apologize for people that missed us on the feed, but I do expect to be a lot, a lot, lot more active in uh, January. And, I, and I'll, I'll just share that this is my full time thing. And uh, so, I'm going to be, I have a lot of time to do this, and I'm looking forward to um, what some of the things. That you'll hear about that we have planned in uh, 2023 that we can't talk about. So, but um, but as as far as Criterion, uh, yeah, I'm I'm with Josh. I, I love how you said uh, used the word beautifully, um, to describe the, the the year. I I think it really was um, a tremendous year, and I think it really uh, your comments about the the call out the New York Times the call to action, and um, I really think we saw that this year in the release cycle. I think it was actually Probably one of the most diverse uh, re- release or years um, in Criterion history, probably, um, and that doesn't mean that the, uh, the the quality went down. I I think a lot of people get caught up in hey, uh, it's only er- um, Bergman and Fellini; those are the only good guys. But there are a lot of great films out there, and you know it's great that Criterion brings a lot to light. Um, you know, we've talked many times about their active curation, and uh, so the you know when the New York Times story came out probably about two or three years now. I'm not sure. You know, they, they took it to heart and they did curate. And um, the thing is, I, I'm never going to say that uh, that active curation or becoming more diverse is a done deal. There's no, never a point where you stop and you say, okay, we're, we're diverse now. So I think that, they're, they're, that curation is going to continue. But I think they're at a place, and I think we saw this in the Sight and Sound as well, I think they're at a place where you know that that criticism really is um is not valid anymore and in fact i've seen this the pendulum swing to the other side and this is not a word i like to use but a lot of them have called it criterion awoke um so i i I don't believe that at all i think we're getting tremendous films from diverse filmmakers and and there are a lot of them are are films i had not been exposed to before so i have really appreciated that um and just two real quick things um UHD continued, and um, that made some difficult choices. You know, do I want to upgrade this thing I spent thirty dollars on with something that cost forty dollars? Um, also, DVDs have kind of been being phased out. Uh, and and just one last observation is, um, and I didn't count, you know, how how much of this there was, but there seems to have been a lot of modern films joining the collection this year. And I, I kind of remember when they had the IFC uh, uh, acquisition or, or deal, whatever, whatever it was. Um, it was around 2008, 2009, and they just ended up putting out a lot from IFC's back catalog. Um, so you saw a lot of new films around then, and we've seen them periodically. But this year, I think they've taken a leap, and they've actually, uh, Janice has even gotten in, in, into um, distribution. And I'm sure that some of the titles we talk about uh, this year, uh, in this episode, uh, Janus Films and eventually Criterion actually uh, you know, were the ones that brought this to the market, so to speak. So yeah, great great, um, uh, great year of releases, and uh, our ongoing social diets, are uh, we're full now from it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, good to hear from you, Aaron. Uh, let's kick it over to Jordan. Jordan, what are some of your thoughts and kind of fill us in on what you've been up to over the past 12 months?
3: Great. Yeah. And I really appreciate what everyone has already said and how well it's been put describing the sort of fluctuating nature of, of the times we live in. Um, I've been in this place in Walport, Oregon for over a year, but it still sort of feels like I'm still finding my way here and um, not in a bad way. I mean, I'm really enjoying my time here, but it does still feel like things are still somewhat in flux. And I have been spending my time differently. Um, I started off as a visual artist, and I've been happy to transform my work schedule in a way that I've been able to dedicate a substantial amount of time to being back in the studio and making paintings. That's really what I want to be doing. And the balance of my time is often spent writing. So I started working as a journalist in the area here. So. I write for a local news agency called Yahats News, and I'll write about anything from, you know, the local fireboard meetings to, you know, contamination problems with the local lake uh, to, you know, whatever. You know, it's, it's a great way to build local relationships and discover more about the place I live in, while at the same time, you know, exercising my, my instinct to write about it. And I'll write also still some art reviews and stuff like that. I work occasionally for a place called Oregon Arts Watch, which... Is essentially the art department, the art and entertainment section of the Oregonian. At one point, kind of branched off into its own organization, and then another institution called Eugene Scene, just a little bit inland of me. So it's been a it's been a really nice time. Um, but my my day to day life is quite different than it was. Um, my landscape is quite different than it was, and I still feel like daily um, it feels. Like, I'm very lucky to have made these changes. My health has been good. I'm still very careful. My wife has some um, sensitivities and some health problems that makes us still exercise most of the precautions we've done since the beginning of the pandemic. And that has netted us uh, no no COVID uh, infections or other seasonal viruses, so that's been kind of nice. Um, interestingly, on the topic of, of health and healthcare, living in a rural area, Um, means that if we want sort of like up-to-date, you know, specialist care, we have to drive quite a distance to get to it. And it's not rare for us. That's like anybody in my community. And that's something I hope to write about at some point because it it really ends up changing a lot of things about the way that you manage your time. I mean, I'm no stranger to a long commute. I used to drive, you know, the six hours between San Francisco and Los Angeles on a weekly basis. So I'm no stranger to a long commute, but it was never to to go to like a dentist appointment <laughs> before. So, <laughs> and wow. and I don't want to shortchange. There are facilities that are nearer, but the, re- the reputation is not as good. And sometimes it feels like, well, if you've had a bad experience with a practitioner that didn't really know what they were doing, you kind of feel like it's worth the extra effort or going to Trader Joe's. I mean, my closest Trader Joe's is an hour and a half away. Um, and these are all, challenges that i knew going into it so I, I don't mind but it is a difference like it's a different way of sort of relating to your local landscape that not everything you need is at hand
0: yeah i have a trader joe's like five minutes from where i work so i can pop in and just grab a couple things but i'm sure you have to stock up and really plan your trip it's a very very mundane thing but it's it
2: is it's uh, just a change in the rhythms of life yeah if I can chime in, um, I have one 15 minutes away, and I've I've complained about how far it is, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna check my privilege on Trader Joe's. Thank
3: you. <laughs> well done, Aaron. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> as far as Criterion uh, is concerned, uh, I had the sense that a lot of people weren't quite as engaged with releases this year as in previous years, and I don't know if that's if that's if I'm able to make that as a broad statement, but it certainly, I think echoed my relationship with the collection this year. I, I've never been a completist or a completionist, as you guys say. So getting a release has never been, um, a priority for me, but I did feel like I was checking with the collection, maybe less. And some of that has to do with time management issues that I just mentioned. And some of it is just like the chaos that I think David very poetically described at the, at the beginning of the episode. Um, I, it creates a lot of opportunities for distraction. Like I, th- I think it's it's kind of it's easier to not sit down and watch a lengthy film that grapples with complex issues like on a regular basis. I tend to watch films in pieces. I know a lot of cinephiles find that to be. <laughs> the act of a philistine um i've kind of always done that because i wanted to see so much stuff and sometimes you only have a half hour so i i never really mind watching things in pieces but i would say at this point um just because of managing time i mostly don't watch things in one sitting and i've recently seen films like well i'll talk about it later but a really lengthy film that almost kind of requires this of you but i i actually I feel there's something to be gained from segmented viewing. That your attention is heightened in a way when you know you can only spend this chunk of time with it. Um, you kind of have the ability to mull over the material you've already digested before you know ingesting more of it. So there's there's something interesting about that, and it's it's almost like benefiting from a second viewing on the first viewing. And in terms of the the things that have been released, like uh, I, I guess I just. I don't want to go into repeats. I'd echo, you know, a lot of things have been brought up and in terms of active curation, I'm hoping, and it's kind of the way that I experience the curation at this point, that this is no longer seen in terms of that New York times piece or in terms of the transformation of the, the types of directors that are getting attention. It kind of feels to me like this is just the way things are done now. And, um, and I'm hoping that we're all heading that way. I'm I'm sorry to hear there's some people that are feeling like the need to disparage the new curation or or however that's been unfolding. But to me it just feels like it's so obviously a good thing. It's so natural. It's like it's less natural to kind of weed people out of the conversation. So it's it's I think it's great. And I, I don't even really think about it that much, to be honest. Like I'm intrigued by all the things that are offered up. My curiosity is always intact, so it's it, I think it's a really good thing. So um, next to that, I would say the the fact that DVDs are less prioritized, the Eclipse collection, which is something of course that David has a very uh, long <laughs> and deep connection to. Yeah. Yeah. I'll highlight that I th- I think it's kind of fun to see little things like uh, like last year we got the spine number for Shapitko's The Ascent and this year mm-hmm. we got daisies you know getting a blue yeah. release with it yeah. with its own spine number and and I hope this uh, foretells like further upgrades of this it, it, it really also related to that Czech collection I'd love to see you know few mm-hmm. pearls of the deep and stuff like that like um, there were certainly a, plenty of great films that because of the structure of the Eclipse release didn't get supplements and it'd be great to finally get stuff like that.
0: Yeah. I think the Ascent and Daisies are kind of the two cherries that were the ripest <laughs> to be picked out of the entire Eclipse series, but yeah, they were, they were excellent films. Maybe some of those Kurosawas from the fifties would, would, would be worth, uh, Blu-ray upgrades, but they've got some DVD Kurosawas that they haven't upgraded yet. so yeah. we'll see where we'll see where they go with that. But uh, yeah, well, excellent. Well, good for the fill in Jordan, and definitely, uh you know, you know, I I know that you know, like Scott and and our, At least one of the reasons they weren't able to participate today is that they have not been as engaged with the collection, and I don't think I'm. You know, throwing them under the bus to say that or anything, uh, it's just basically yeah the 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 stabilities of life and and you know just the uh, the, the the overflow of of media and input and and various uh, things demanding our attention obviously. You know, you, you do your cinema thing, but there are many other interests and other angles to pursue. So I, I certainly understand that. And I think, you know, talking about sort of where the Criterion Collection has gone, you know, moving away, like Josh, you very poignantly stated, you know, the the classic sixties and seventies art house, you know, uh, you know, masterworks, you know, the Kurosawas, the Bergman's, the Fellinis, um, the Renoirs, the Truffauts, etc., you know, there's just not a lot of those titles left if if you if you really think about it they they really have kind of mined the uh, the, the 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 more towering pieces you know there there may be a few you know uh, Godard obscurities there's there's certainly some Truffaut stuff that was licensed out to other distributors that Criterion might want to get their hands on etc but I really appreciate the fact that Criterion has you know very knowingly ventured out into some new territory, not necessarily territory that they were completely uh, ignoring or oblivious to in years past. But I think, I think, you know, we've referenced that New York times article a couple times already in our conversation. I actually have done a little bit of, research. And I've, I've kind of created some little charts of what I would call the, the various niches that Criterion sort of specializes in. And, and, you know, a lot of them have been, you know, the classic art house or contemporary indie films, uh, you know, music and pop culture uh, films, documentaries, you know, golden age of Hollywood classic stuff. But, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in more recent years, you know, you've definitely seen an emphasis on LGBTQ films, uh, women directors, but I think really since that New York Times article, the, the very intentional focus on on black directors or, or stories that are centered on black characters has been a very important and very um, significant development that needs to be I think celebrated and respected, uh, even though there as, as Aaron and others have, have noted, there's been a little bit of backlash. I, I think that's very unfortunate, very regrettable, uh, but also sadly, somewhat predictable. Uh, if you look at the you know number of films that were released in 2019 and 2020 that were really like centered or focused on on uh, black characters, you, you really see that there's been kind of a, a darth of that. Like in 2019, let me get my chart up here. And in, in 2020, I went through the whole list. You had Bamboozled, a Spike Lee film, Claudine, and Ghost Dog that were basically centered on black characters. Um, and Claudine was en- was entered right at the end of that year, I think soon after Ashley Clark may have taken over as one of the chief programming uh, voices at Criterion and that's grown quite a bit last year and then this year. So from single digits of, of films focused on, on black or African-American characters to, you know, a dozen or more, uh, I think that's, you know, statistically you can definitely see that there's been an intentional effort and I think we are all the better off for it. So yeah, I, I, I also have noted the, the, uh, You know, the uh, inability, if you're a DVD-only collector, you're not going to be able to collect the entire Criterion Collection anymore because there's a lot of titles that have just never been released in that format. In fact, we went a whole half a year. Uh, The first film that was released in 4K, Blu-ray, and DVD was Okja, Bong Joon-ho's film uh, from Korea there from a few years ago. We had some Blu-ray and DVD editions, we had several Blu-ray only editions, of course we had several uh, 4K only upgrades. Uh, as well as keeping the initial Blu-ray in print. So yeah, and then, you know, films like The Safdies, Daddy Long Legs and Frownland by Ronald Bronstein, both released only in Blu-ray. So you can go down the list and see that uh, they are being very selective about which formats uh, they release films in. Some films only get Blu-ray releases because there's already an adequate DVD out there, or they're just going to consolidate the market into that one format. So. Pretty interesting developments, uh, you know. They've certainly always had to have an eye towards, uh, you know, the, the commercial aspect of what's going to sell, what's going to, you know, generate you know, a suitable return on the investment. But I think they've also done a very admirable job of of leading people who trust the Criterion brand to discover films uh, such as some that I think have made our list today that might not have even been considered as Criterion Collection releases even just a few years ago. So it, I think it's it's again for the betterment of, of everybody involved that filmmakers, uh, you know, black directors, women directors who were making films uh, back in the you know '80s and '90s and early 2000s before they were considered part of a particular film movement, let's say, uh, are now getting recognition as as important voices. Uh, whose films maybe are getting attention and notice and engagement uh, years after the fact, but better late than never, and we find, as we often do, that these films from decades past still speak very presciently and poignantly to the situations that we're facing and dealing with as a society in our in our own times. So, yeah, uh, it's been a good year for Criterion, I think a, a very uh, interesting uh you know, series of developments. that they've had to respond to a changing marketplace, uh, uh, you know, changing habits, and even some critical feedback about the role that they play in sort of establishing what are the important and worthwhile films for us to watch, um, you know, when we take a disc home or pop it up on the streaming media. Uh, as far as my personal life and all, you know, uh, I'm, I'm blessed with very good health. And I did take a little bit of a break from podcasting over the summer just to kind of enjoy the season and do some traveling and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, I'm happy to be here and happy to continue uh, with the uh, with the podcasting process and the, you know, again facilitating this conversation today is a, a source of great joy and happiness to me. So let's get on with the conversation and uh, get into our uh, favorites of the year. We're a half hour in, so let's get all the personal stuff off to the side and get into the meat of it here. So, Josh, I'm going to let you get us started. What was your favorite? cover or packaging of 2022 from the Criterion Collection?
1: You know, I mean, there's always so much great packaging. There's always so many great covers. Uh, but I I have to go with uh, one of the first releases of the year. I think it, uh, it when it was announced, everyone was delighted. Everyone thought it was nice and cheeky and it was uh, a lovely and fun funny approach to uh, the uh, the way the film was marketed and touted when it was first released, and that is Thomas Vinterberg's The Celebration. Um, it's a Dogma 95 film, and uh, the packaging reflects the stripped-down uh, bare aesthetics of the film. It is simply the film title, Dogma 1, the celebration with the runtime and the date uh, slapped on a bare white sticker. And uh, we've got a very plain Criterion wacky C up in the corner with the the typical Criterion spine. And then you've got the Dogma manifesto tucked in uh, in a clear case, I, it's just, it's a really fun, uh, brilliant piece of packaging that I think is, is uh, uh, it's something that I, I, I think is incredibly um, refreshing uh, when you have so many uh, releases that have, you know, gorgeous covers and really lavish packages uh, to see something that is this stripped down, that fits the tone, fits the the style of the filmmaking, um, I, when you you really think about it, there's nothing else that this. There's no other way this film could have been released.
0: <laughs> well, that was the very first release of the of the year, Josh, and so the cover art was all downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> No, it is a very brilliant concept, and uh, it is very amusing. I mean, you even see kind of the you know through the packaging that the the discs are poking through because yep. the front cover doesn't even you know, you know cover that entire space. Yeah, it's 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 very you know just kind of a bare outline, uh, but yeah, very much in the spirit of that kind of minimalistic uh, Dogma ninety five aesthetic that uh, you know kind of had a pretty big, big run of it there for for several years. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I find that fun. I I keep going back to that. I I toyed with a couple of other ones as well, but that was the one that just it it stood out to me.
0: The uh the website Criterion website credits the cover to Century Studio and there is actually a link in the show notes to the Century Studio page and they actually have a really brilliant um summary of the work that they've done on behalf of Criterion. So it not doesn't even focus specifically on this cover. But if nothing else, if there's no other reason to check the show notes, I really recommend that you check out that link because it will get to uh, Century Studios' work um, with Criterion, which means which is also very involved in redesigning their whole website. Of course, you know, longtime Criterion collectors know that their website went through a very major overhaul several years ago, and the uh, the Century Studio kind of gives a very nice walkthrough of that process and and of course they're selling their services so there's a little bit of a commercial pitch blended in there but it's really fascinating because they've also done other criterion artworks so if you really want to get behind the scenes a little bit and understand some of the design concepts it seems like criterion and the century studio have a pretty good co- close working relationship so definitely recommend that if you want to check out more of their work yeah all right aaron you want to give us your favorite cover of the year
2: yes and um and I also looked at uh, a lot of different covers and, uh, and many of which uh, are, are going to be talked about. Uh, and Josh, I'm glad you picked um, the celebration <laughs> because uh, the, uh, that's one I considered as well. Um, but I, I chose Eve's Bayou and that's a cover by, uh, I believe his name is Nessam uh, Higson. So he's done a lot of work for the collection. I think um, two covers that come to mind that he did were Phoenix, uh, that, that was a few years Mm, back mm -hmm. um and also he did the clouds of Sils maria so both modern films and i think there was actually some controversy about the clouds of Sils maria but i think it's a a nice cover
0: so i think they didn't they have a a change from the original release they they kind of revamped it
2: pretty significantly Mm -hmm. i think that's true yeah so um but it ended up being a a really nice cover and you know i think he works um at least from the covers i've seen it's pretty much Photography or it's it stills from the film and with Eve's Bayou uh, I think he did a great job of just kind of capturing everything about the film and I won't spoil the film But you know he it looks like maybe th- two or three maybe four images kind of overlaid with each other uh, And it gives a kind of a aesthetic beauty. Uh, it's kind of like gradient sort of although with you know Not the same uh, uh, color uh, Not the same type of colors contrasting colors that is and there there's one person putting their um their finger in front front of their face which is pretty much you know be quiet is a very, very much uh, uh part of the movie you know silence and uh and yeah also the um this is a very very much a louisiana film um a, a louisiana black story film and i think that's also uh, uh captured in the cover in a very um beautiful way so yeah i i, I love it he was by you yeah, kind of that
0: southern gothic feel, mm-hmm. the kind of the heavy vegetation and kind of back in the bayous there.
3: Definitely. Back in the bayou,
0: yeah. <laughs> All right, Jordan, you want to give us a kind of overview of your favorite art of the year?
3: Yeah, definitely. Uh, like usual, I kind of feel like my number one choice was pretty obvious. I had a favorite that was by far and away the most, most beautiful, and interesting to me. And this is the cover to Marcel Carney's Hotel du Nord. And it's a cover by Lithuanian illustrator Karolius Strutnikas, and he's a guy who works digitally. He does a lot of uh, illustration work for magazines. I've certainly seen his work on the cover of the New Yorker before. And he's working largely monochrome here. It's not quite black and white. There, there are a lot of cream colors mixed in here, but um, it's this. Uh, the style is interesting, and it is something that carries over to his other work, where where figures are. Are kind of rendered playfully with this these soft gradations and this abbreviated almost mannequin like form, uh, which reminds me in in some ways of the sculptures of Eile uh, Nadelman uh, from the 1900s, both the classical work that he did and the the um, the more cubist inspired work, where figures are, are almost cartoon like um, in some of their extremities. There is um, structurally there's there's sort of three columns of darkness. On the cover and one is uh, Rene and one is Pierre the uh, the couple that are sort of at the center of the story and those are silhouettes sort of broadcast on the side of the the hotel's facade and then the, the third column of darkness is this almost nearly empty patch of, of night sky Um, it's potentially also sort of a landscape of nothingness, kind of symbolic of the death that this couple mutually sought at the beginning of the tale. And there's this great line, uh, where Renee says to Pierre, um, when she's visiting him in, in jail, that that she's forgotten all that about this, this sort of terrible episode. And Pierre responds, it takes two to forget. And their silhouettes cast on the building kind of evoke that exchange for me, um, quite remarkably it's a sort of the persistence of memory of this disastrous disastrous uh shared night um at the hotel is always sort of partially recovered always sort of thinly applied to the present and every conversation that they have or whenever they think of each other and there is in on that third column that i that you basically describes the night sky there's a reversal quality to it um if you look at the figure of edmund it almost appears that that he is in front of a, a building instead of negative space and the the lit upper body of the hotel almost becomes like the daytime sky and this reversal the hotel becoming the sky and and edmund existing in this this other landscape um it almost to me describes this reversal of, of the Edmund character who we learn in the story used to have uh, a different name of Paolo and is actually someone named Robert. So this, this sort of this ability to see the image as two different spaces centering on this figure of Edmund becomes sort of interesting to me. And then if, if that's the sky up there, then this this figure peering out one of the hotel windows, uh, the character depicting the character of Raymond, she, she becomes kind of like encased in this undefined floating prison with her shadow leaning over her and these anonymous occupants on the flow below her, kind of almost barely defined more than the shadow than uh, her own shadow which which I think describes something about the psychological state of Ramon in the story um, a lot of characters sort of feel like they are in a kind of prison I mean we have Pierre in an actual prison but the hotel itself even though the environment you know exists with the best of intentions um, ends up being a place for people that don't have a lot of options and um, the, uh, the strands of flags and light uh, lights at the bottom margin of the image uh, remind us and sort of punctuate the fact that the ground is out of sight that we're above it that the streets and canals and the places where we presume the real identity of robert um, can exist and live freely um, is is sort of out of reach this this place far far away where renee at one point tells him that they will be free um, but that's not that's not how it unfolds anyway it's just um, i think it's a very well thought out image that uh even if you don't consider any of any of those underpinnings is uh would make for a beautiful poster so that's my favorite of the year well,
0: actually, Jordan, you can get that post for eighty pounds on the artist's website. So.
3: <laughs> well done. <laughs>
0: there is a, there is a link that again in the show notes, uh, just to get a little bit deeper into the artist's work. But I, you know, I have to just say, I always look forward to your favorite cover of the year sections, Jordan, because you always take <laughs> us deeper into a contemplation and appreciation for. Uh, those little subtle details. I look at it and say, yeah, that's a pretty striking image. Definitely captures some very evocative moments from that film, which is really a pretty exquisite uh, you know, uh, entry of, of the poetic realism uh, subgenre uh, right on the brink of the outbreak of World War II, and you just sort of feel... Yeah, the storm clouds gathering over over the story of these kind of characters who've all found themselves in this hotel along the canal in Paris. There, so yeah, it's it's a pretty remarkable film and definitely one of those kind of feels like one of those throwback Criterion classics uh, that could have been released back in the mid two thousands. You know, uh, but I'm glad we're still getting those types of films every so often from the from the collection. So, thanks for that guided tour
2: through the, the beautiful illustration. Thanks, David. Hey David, um, yeah. do you mind yeah. giving the same level of analysis to your cover? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'll,
0: I'll I'll rev it up as best I can. Yeah, I went with uh, pink flamingos, <laughs> from the sublime to the ridiculous, I suppose you could say. Right? Uh, this, uh, I guess this the website cov- uh, credits this to Eric Skillman, who of course is one of their in-house lead uh, art the production managers and designers and I, I would say i give him the credit for the plain brown wrapper which is the perfect uh you know sort of packaging device uh, maybe for for younger uh, listeners who maybe don't get the reference, the plain brown wrapper was kind of the uh, the cliche for uh, spicy or or even forbidden type of material that uh, you would just pick up that adult book or that you know girly magazine or whatever the case may be in a plain brown wrapper, so as to not draw any attention to the. Uh, you know unsightly or controversial material that might be enclosed within so pink flamingos of course uh, it's been a long sought for uh, re-release by the Criterion Collection. They, re- they did release it in Laserdisc way back when. And for a long time, it felt like, well, they'll ne- they'll never go back there again. But then as more and more John Waters movies started coming into the collection, it seemed like it was just a matter of time for Pink Flamingos to finally get its release. And of course, earlier this year, it was announced and we were all, you know, Well, I guess there was a variety of reactions to whether or not this one was welcome. In fact, I know I've got friends who've been with me on podcasts before who are not fans of this particular film or of John Waters in particular. Uh, But this is definitely a film that uh, crosses all kinds of boundaries. I had a fantastic podcast episode about it back before it was re-released by Criterion. I think we recorded that one back in 2021. But yeah, I I do love this cover. It's got kind of an inside joke uh, It's addressed to Babs John. Johnson in a trailer in phoenix maryland uh, you've got all the usual stuff on the back but it's also in a slip case which kind of gives it a little bit more like inserted into a, a paper bag rather than the uh you know the kind of the digipack slip case that we're most familiar with uh, i've actually seen people who've criticized criterion for not including slips on their blu-rays because the, the vertical slip case is kind of a status symbol for certain limited editions of of DVDs or blu-rays of course blu-rays are 4ks nowadays um, having a slip means that's kind of a cut above I'm not necessarily crazy about the vertical slip cases but I think in this case it, it is perfect for for its purpose you pull the disc out you get this incredible portrait of uh, Jackson what's his name here Jackson oh gosh I'm free let's see well, his, his first name is Jackson I, I don't have it in front of me and I'm not going to spend time digging around but it's a portrait of divine from that kind of infamous concluding scene there's the little pooch right off to off to his right there <laughs> and and it's the, the back of the case has this kind of gallery style labeling uh, John waters born 1946 pink flamingos 1972 16 millimeter ectachrome. so it's kind of showing the medium that the uh, work of art was originally created in inside you get a Uh, pink phlegm ingo barf bag (laughs) 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 a little a little bonus insert and the uh, and the liner notes come in the form of a midnight uh scandal sheet uh kind of a a gossip rag that my grandmother kind of used to read these types of things back in the 70s so it's kind of on a kind of a newsprint large format a fold out there with a a few essays, exclusive photos of Divine, the filthiest person alive. So it's just one of these kind of fun and games, bells and whistles, pull out all the stops, uh, packaging coups, even even the... uh, the disc art is the birthday cake. Happy birthday, Babs. The filthiest person alive. <laughs> so it's just like, you know, it it's perfectly captures the spirit of the film and, uh, you know, does justice to the fans of this film, which I think are are numerous. And if that was one of the takeaways from my podcast episode is this movie, this completely rowdy, punk rock, subversive, uh, you know, eruption from the bowels of, of Baltimore's kind of, uh, nitty gritty underclass and, and rebels and misfits made this movie that was probably never expected to go anywhere. And now it really is. It is a massive cultural touchstone for better or for worse. And, uh, the fact that the Criterion Collection worked with Don Waters to, to, to give this film what I think has got to be its definitive, uh, edition, uh, that that just says a lot and i i definitely felt like yeah this was the cover that i just got the most sheer amusement from uh in 2022 well we have covered the cover so let's go ahead and get down to our top three <laughs> josh i'm going to give you the chance to kind of get that process started so what's your number three favorite criterion collection release of 2022
1: yeah, you know, my favorite, or my number three choice for uh, favorite Criterion releases is uh, Cassie Lemon's Eve's Bayou. Uh, this is one that uh, I've covered on my podcast as uh, a recommendation on other streaming services, and then it came to the channel just recently, and, uh, you know, this is a film that I saw Back during its original release, I think I saw it uh, after it had made it to video, and it's one that has stayed with me uh, for a very long time. It's one that has been in desperate need of a really good high-definition release for years. Um, it was released uh, in the 90s during that period of time when a lot of films have um, missed that window to really get a good high-definition Transfer and release, and um, I, I think it's it's one that also gets forgotten a lot um, because uh, it is it's part of that um, '90s indie wave and can often get overlooked by films that uh, were bigger, were recognized uh, as kind of cultural touchstones. Uh, especially, you know, when you have someone like Samuel L. Jackson, who was just becoming a major star at that time, with Pulp Fiction, with A Time to Kill, um, you know, here he's in a more supporting role. So I, I think that it's a film that just gets forgotten, and to have Criterion highlight it on the channel and then bring it to the collection. Uh, to me is uh, a really great service. And uh, not only for resurrecting the film, it's a great film. This is a really uh, haunting coming of age story. It's uh, a film that looks at the loss of innocence, at the, the complicated family relationships between children and their parents. Uh, the ways that children can idealize their parents, uh, and the way when that that gets broken, uh, how shattering that can be. It does it all with this this tinge of magical realism, um, and uh, it's spooky. It is uh, haunting and mythic and poetic it features just incredible performances across the board uh journey smollett who has gone on to have a really fantastic career uh plays the central uh young girl in the film and uh, then you also have uh just this incredible supporting cast uh including debbie morgan diane carroll um and, you know, again, Samuel L. Jackson, uh, towards the uh, beginning of his kind of rise to, to fame, even though he'd been working for a, quite a long time, uh, this is just uh, an incredible film. And I am so happy that Criterion not only released it, but released it with so many bells and whistles, right? We've yeah, got, this is a two-disc set here. Yeah. This is two we've Blu-rays, got, right? Two cuts of the film. We have Cassie Lemon's preferred cut that has been restored, but we also have a restoration of the theatrical release version too. So uh, we're going to get to compare both versions of that film. We've got audio commentary, uh, which you know I always love uh, audio commentaries. We don't get as we haven't been getting as many audio commentaries recently. We've got a short film that uh, Cassie Lemons made uh, uh, as proof of concept for the film, and I always am a big proponent of uh, uh, or a big fan of when Criterion releases short films with uh, the the releases Um, interviews cast reunion footage uh interviews with terrence blanchard who is again one of the the great composers who i just i hope will get recognized get more recognition than he gets um this is just a, a fantastic release that um uh when when people when I see in the comments and I, I should never look at the comments on Criterion's page when they release announcements and I hear people say, Oh, there's nothing for me this month. Uh, I, I just want to scream and shout at people and say, you know, take a chance on things like this. This is an amazing mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. And um, I am so glad that Criterion is releasing it, adding it to the collection and, um, uh, and bringing uh, Cassie lemons and her work into the criterion family
0: excellent yeah yeah i mean i i will say i mean i'll just i will confess that i would have written this off as oh it's a it's a black film it's a film for women it's a film for people who live in that part of the country i mean and i don't say that with any kind of smugness or satisfaction or anything i mean it's a mm-hmm. it's a cultural conditioning that would have led me to say well that's just not a movie for me and I'm, it's, it's it is sad to see certain people saying well they're going to persist in that rather than thinking, wow, there's, there's something here that, that maybe I would, I would, uh, benefit from expanding yeah. my horizons a little bit. So, yeah. All right, Aaron, you want to go ahead and take over and uh, give us your number three?
2: Certainly. And, um, in fact, uh, well said, Josh, I, looks like you and I are playing a little switcheroo with uh, covers. <laughs> and a lot of what you said about Eve's You*, I could say about my choice. But I do just want to echo everything you said about that film. Uh, yeah, don't dismiss those films. And this one especially, I, I think, is very rich and dense in character. Um, so mm-hmm. that's all I'll say about, about his choice. Uh, but good pick. Um, so my choice is uh, Thomas Vinterberg's The Celebration for my number three uh, film. And as David mentioned, this was the first movie, or the first Criterion release of the year. And I remember podcasting around that time. I think when we reacted to these um, these release, this the January release slate, that um, this looked like a candidate for best of the year. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. here we are, uh, many months later, and I still feel that it's a candidate. And it's also a double disc, uh, clever cover, as Josh uh, already talked about. And uh, it, by this point, um, Thomas Vinterberg, of course, is he's been nominated for an Oscar, well, won an Oscar actually for an, another round, and has had quite a, a illustrious career. Um, so it's it, it's really great to rewind to the beginning of his career in this film movement. Um, not in UHD or 4K, which uh, if you've seen the movie, you understand it would have been an absolute waste of resources. Um, but um, but it's an excellent excellent film. I won't go into the film too much uh, just because. Well, what what I'll say about the film is you the story it's so well written and it's so dramatic that it comes from the characters and the acting, that you don't really need to dress it up in a lot of uh, cinematic glitter, so to speak, um, and it's a, really one of the ideal first Dogma ninety five films. Uh, and for those that don't know, Dogma Dogma ninety five was a movement. Um, in a danish movement where they put restrictions on how they would film projects so basically like no artificial light uh use locations direct sound etc it's a rule of of a list of about 15 or so rules i believe and um of course there's there are probably about 30 or so films from this movement but uh the thing is everybody cheated a little bit. <laughs> and in, <laughs> yeah. in fact, even Vinterberg, uh, he, he addressed a couple um, p- places where he cheated. Um, but I think probably, I, I have, don't have this ranked or anything, who cheated the least or the most, but uh, I'm guessing that he cheated the least. And it was still a very well-known, uh, well-done movie. And I agree with that commentaries are always great. And I think for this film, um, a commentary... Close to the time of its making, um, actually, it turned out to be ten years later. From Vinterberg, was really revealing. I think he he had a lot more to say about that film that then that he would than he would today. So I'm glad they went with that. And um and yeah, the the release is just stacked. And I think it's really the it's not really just this film. It's really all about Dogma 95, which really was a very popular uh, uh, movement, very impactful movement with, with cinephiles. And uh, kind of led to, even if not, the, not all the individual films were widely seen, I, I think it did lead to um, filmmakers limiting themselves and, um, and that sometimes limitation allows or uh, prompts creativity and, uh, and you make uh, really interesting films like this one. Uh, there's also a documentary about uh, Dogma 95, which is, um, you know, I, I, it was a blessing to, to get that. Uh, and there's also some short films uh, last round which uh, I thought might be connected to his Oscar winning another round but um, actually I'm, I forgot it so it might be but but there's so much more there's um there's a lot of just supplements about the the movie itself um, deleted scenes with commentary from Vinterberg, uh, if you want um, a cinematographer profile so yeah it's this really is just a juicy release and uh, and really I, I I would love to see more Dogma 95 films come to the collection, but I don't think that's necessary with this release. I think they've pretty much covered that movement um, as well as they could.
0: Now, Lars von Trier, of course, is one of the more famous names to emerge from that movement, and there is a upcoming von Trier box set. Are those considered Dogma 95 films, or was that after he'd already kind of moved into new territory?
2: Good question. Uh, the only uh, von Trier that I'm familiar with is... Um, that was considered dogma was the idiots, and I believe that was the second one. Um, however, I, I, I and you know von Trier von Trier is a very complicated and uh, oh, yeah. controversial oh, yeah. director, um, but I I really respect him as a filmmaker even if I don't like all his films. But he made a film um, I think a decade later or so from this movement called The Five Obstructions, mm. uh, where he. Kind of, it was kind of an experiment film, so it's kind of off topic. I'm digressing a little bit, but I, I do recommend watching that. It's just another way where you, if you challenge yourself as a filmmaker maker, um, kind of an exercise, you can sometimes really make uh, something special. So,
1: yeah, David, I believe that the three that are going to be in the box set were prior to the Dogma that, movement. That's correct. Okay, that's correct. Yeah, okay. and so that that the Dogma movement came out of his kind of continuing to experiment and uh, kind of wanting to add more and more restrictions to his work.
2: Yeah, I think it was right after that trilogy.
0: Yeah. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you for that insight. Um, Let's go ahead and move it over to Jordan. What's your number three for the year, Jordan?
3: I applied a little criteria to my decision making this year. Uh, So I will preface my choice by saying that I chose films in all three slots that were by directors that were entering the collection for the first time Mm -hmm. in 2022. And that also had to me, you know, a very exciting filmography that I hope Criterion will continue to pursue and explore in future Mm years. Uh, In, In Aaron's introductory comments, uh, he mentioned that there was a surplus of recent films in the collection this last year. And my number three choice is one of several 2021 films that they released, a group that also included Power of the Dog and Worst Person of the Year. Um, My number three favorite is Spine 1136, Drive My Car, uh, which is co-written and directed by Ryusuke Hamaguchi, and this scooped up the uh, Best International Film at last year's Academy Awards, as well as numerous Critic Circles Awards. Um, it's a film that we were all probably very well aware of and likely had already seen. But uh, it's a big one. It's, um, it's a filmmaker that I am just exceedingly impressed by. And I got the opportunity through the channel to see a number of his previous works and I uh, there's a lot to mine there so i know some of those already have uh other labels they're attached to but you know there's hope for the future uh so this film drive my car is based on um several murakami short stories including one called drive my car um one called Shahrazad, which is actually fantastic they're all they're all good but um Sure, Scheherazade is is like a really beautiful story as is Kino. So strangely enough Drive My Car is a short story is actually the least interesting I think of the ones that he ended up adapting to to make this film. And that's like a 40-page story. It's it's really brief. It contains very little of the wealth of this almost you know, or, or maybe over three hour film. And that was the reason why Hamaguchi ended up mining elements from other stories in this collection called men without women to try to figure out, you know, how do you, how do you adapt this into a feature length experience, which is kind of interesting because a lot of films that are adapted from short stories are done. So because full length novels end up being sort of too large a canvas to adapt into a film. And, and here was sort of the opposite problem uh, unfolding the film is um, it's certainly about grief but I would say more specifically it's kind of about a substantial longing that includes you know all of those delicate uncertainties related to the questions of what exactly am I in grief for and and what exactly is one longing for the film is also about translation um, both symbolic and like almost alchemical translation, as in, you know, how does one thing become another out of the ashes of its previous form, but also literal language interpretation. Like it's it's commonly noted that characters in the film speak as many as like nine different languages, and many of them do not share the same language, and many of them are studying a text um, that's written and yet another language that is not native to any of the characters, Anton Chekhov's uh, play, Uncle Vanya. The uh, main character is an actor and director um, named Yusuke Kapuku, and he hears throughout the entire film, in a gentle but, upon further inspection, kind of an oppressive way, You know the lines from this play, like the rehearsals that he's attending, but also then in the car, there's these constant recordings that were made by his late wife, Oto. And so there's this, there's this constant ritual in play during the film, various different repetitions. And so it's a story about not just routines, but, but like fractured routines, like routines that are kind of residual leftovers from previous routines, like what happens when the, all the patterns that we've adopted to organize our sense of self are severed or forced into these wounded sort of hollowed-out contexts, And Kafuku has has lost his wife, the wife who has made these recordings of the Uncle Vanya play, because as an actor, he had played the role of of Vanya multiple times. And this is the thing that I think we all know actors often do, is they they listen to recordings not just of their own lines, but after a certain point of memorization, it becomes very useful to have just the other person's lines so that you can fill in the blanks. When prompted by the other dialogue, and so he has all these all these recordings made by his wife, but he's lost her um, from a sudden brain hemorrhage, uh, and not that it's important, but this is you know another small change made from the original story, um, and because of her infidelity, you know he's he's to a certain degree he's lost faith in their love to a certain degree because of a condition of glaucoma and then a, a litigation concern by the the Hiroshima theater where he's accepted this residency he can't drive and so uh, and also because of grief he he doesn't feel he can still perform he has this great line I'm gonna paraphrase paraphrase it but that the the work of Chekhov asks of you you know so much internal and personal work that at this point in life he can't handle it anymore so he can't uh He can't perform anymore, so he can only drive himself. He can't have a mate. He can't perform on stage. So he recycles pieces of of these previous building blocks of his life, but it's unclear if he can move on. You know, it asks the question, like, can he exit through any of these holes, any of these perforations in these previous structures? Can he exit through the holes in his wife's recordings from the scenes from Uncle Vanya, the spaces where he's, he's used to filling in with Vanya's lines of dialogues? Can these silences be filled with something else? Uh, and it's it's difficult to describe <laughs> the restrained style of of Hamaguchi, both in this film and his previous works. Um, but he he appears to prioritize a, like a sustained intrigue for for small human moments, but unrelentingly so. And yet, in a very gentle, very, um, I would say. Um, humanistic way but but that there's, there's there's just this fluidity to the film where it's kind of it, it never releases its grasp on you and yet it never kind of asking for attention and so there's nothing cute or clever about his style uh, it's it's not cynical he doesn't wink at the audience it just feels really genuine really interested in being truthful uh, it sensitivity over glamour and the result is beguiling and not something that i think too many other filmmakers working today are, are interested in kind of building this kind of thing. So it's very refreshing. And uh, it's got a great use of silence as well as score. One of the most exciting things about this release is it's not my favorite Hamaguchi film uh, after seeing several others. So there's this, uh, <laughs> there's this sense in which because this film is three hours long, um, it was brought up a lot in the the buzz around the film. Like, well, it's three hours, but you know, it's worth it. Well, in my opinion of the films I've seen of his, there's this 2015 um, film that is over five hours long. It's called Happy Hour. Mm. It's on the channel right now. It is so good, you guys. Um, it's mm. it plays to all of the strengths of Hamaguchi's style, which to some extent, Drive My Car is a more polished film that has at at times just in comparison to his other work it it will fall victim to the temptation of making a story point a little bigger than it has to be i don't want to spoil all the details of the film but there's some of the backstories include some pretty dramatic terrible events that some of his previous films they don't go there they just they they trust the smaller human moments the smaller human stories are are grand enough of a landscape that you don't have to have sort of extreme drama, and that's um, that's I think that's really appealing. So it's it's worth seeing those other films, but nothing to take away from how good this one is. Uh, let's see, uh, he he portrays people um, with a with this this high level of complexity, and over all the courses of all these films, um, embracing enigma and and impurities. He questions the meaning and the shape of closeness like who is close to who you know with what exceptions can this other person experience life the the way experience life the way that i do and this is particularly interesting in drive my car because there's so many actors that are characters in the story so they're trying on roles some of them trying on the same roles that other characters have portrayed and in the case of something like uncle vanya like the the rich history of actors attempting this role so so this this again, this repetition, these traditions, who will play Vanya, who will drive the car? The car seems to stand in for in some ways like the will to simply go on, but also the will to repeat the same commute or hopefully the will to change direction at a certain point. There is um mm. there is the uh, the point in the story in the short story, the Murakami short story, um, which is strangely. The film is strangely more stoic than Murakami's writing, but also warmer, I would make that observation. But there's this interesting point at the very end of the short story where um, uh, the craft of acting is described as something risky, that when, when an actor takes on a role, it can, it can lead to disaster, um, or it implies that. you can lead to adultery, you know, and this very interesting point that you may not come back as the same person. That once you put on the garb of a different person, the the continuity of self that you return to might actually have changed in your absence. In the film, while that's a very interesting point, in the film, I think, I think acting is treated slightly more poetically and, and potentially seen as a redemptive act that can reveal truth, which the film definitely does. So that's my number three, drive my car.
0: Well, you've done a great job of turning my attention back to this film, Jordan. I mean, it's been sitting on my shelf since it was... It was uh, put on sale during the half-off at Barnes & Noble back in, I think it was, July. But I have to confess, I haven't returned to the film because I did see it, you know, in its uh, theatrical run and its streaming when it was available. So it's kind of been sitting there waiting for a revisit. But, uh, yeah, you definitely bring out some very fascinating dimensions of the film. And (laughs) I don't know if that's a story that others on the the podcast here can share. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I was definitely... Uh, anticipating that Criterion would release this, uh, certainly when that won the Oscar, it's like, well, okay, Criterion's definitely going to pounce on that one, and, uh, and I'm glad that they did.
3: And they were uh, distributing uh, yeah, it, like Janice had the distribution, yeah, right. right?
0: Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. So this was definitely a, a real coup for them, and I think it does bode well for future uh, releases from Hamaguchi's filmography. Uh, they'll just give a little bit of space, and perhaps sometime next year we'll get into some of those earlier films. But yeah, thanks for taking us through that one. So I'm going to go ahead and do my number three now, which is basically my nod to the classic film canon. Uh, This is one of those uh, luscious 4K restorations and kind of the deluxe packages. I went with Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull, um, basically because this was one of those kind of real important tentpole releases that Criterion was able to publish in 2022 in the 4K, double disc, uh, with all the supplements from some of the earlier deluxe editions that had been released on Blu-ray, as well as some original material created for, for the disc. I don't think I have to say a whole lot about Raging Bull. It is, uh, you know, very clearly a very significant, uh, entry into, you know, one of the greatest of, of American films, uh, you know, of its era or really of, of the 20th century. Um, because it's been so canonized and so celebrated, it's, it's easy to sort of take for granted that, you know, of course, Raging Bull and Taxi Driver and Scorsese and all the things he's done, but, This is a film that the supplements make very clear was so close to never happening, and it was really just the tenacity, particularly of Robert De Niro, who kind of convinced Scorsese to take this project on when he was maybe moving in other directions and really wasn't even a a sports or a boxing fan, but uh, got drawn in to tell this story uh, and did so in a very memorable way. Uh, This disc, of course, just kind of gives you all of that background information and, uh, you know. If, if it had not been released by Criterion, if certainly there were other good editions out there. But I just feel like this one kind of was in a kind of a, a heavyweight showdown you might say with uh, Double Indemnity uh, for mm. this number three spot where I really wanted to kind of give recognition to some of those you know like I say all-time classics though, those really big films that are sort of emblematic of their era and Double Indemnity would sort of be my kind of main rival for the number three which uh, was you know certainly a uh, based on my enjoyment of the film and the disc and the whole package but also just an acknowledgement of the fact that these are big movies that had a big footprint in the culture and cast a long shadow and created a lot of uh influence on other filmmakers uh raging bull is kind of my uh, example of what criterion is able to do when they get their hands on a you know a, a top shelf uh property and do it up really right
3: Great pick, David. And I would I would echo that Double Indemnity was very much in contention for my list as well. Um, yeah, revisiting yeah. it this year was, it kind of offered new insights into who Walter Neff was, and, and it looked mm-hmm. beautiful. So yes, also sort of special note for that one.
2: Yeah, mine as well. One of the biggest re- releases of the year uh, for Criterion.
0: All right. Well, let's go ahead and move it on to number two. So, Josh, we're going to go ahead and get the rotation reset. What's your number two for the 2022?
1: Yeah, um, my number two, kind of going off of uh, Jordan's a little bit, is uh, Jessica Bashir's Faya Dei." This is another Janus Films acquisition. It played the festival circuit for a while, and then Janus Films picked it up. Uh, this is a uh, experimental documentary uh, by uh, a Mexican Ethiopian filmmaker that is a, a poetic exploration of the uh, cot trade and uh, the way that cot has um, uh, taken over so much of Ethiopia's uh, uh, life and uh, the the way it has, has trapped many members of the older generation. Uh, it uh, has a, a, an addictive property and uh, the way many uh, people, once they are um, bound into the, the uh, addiction, uh, they end up never really being able to get out of that cycle. And, um, It uh, looks at the younger generation and their desire to leave. It looks at the civil wars and the conflicts and the, the sense of hopelessness for a lot of people within the community. Uh, and it's all done in this, um, with this really haunting poetic voiceover, uh, it uses, uh, lush black and white, uh, photography, um, the imagery is just gorgeous and poetic and uh, beautiful imagery throughout. It kind of lulls you into uh, a state of reflection and contemplation as you watch. And uh, I think that it it is a, an incredibly meditative film. Um, it never really uh, comes down on the side of Condemning cot because it's also used as part of uh, religious practices, but it also shows how the abuse and how the the ways that the substance can be can be turned and can be uh, can be abused. It it, it shows the, the ways that this can then just contribute to a, a lack of opportunities for people. I I just find this this film. Um, really beautiful. I saw it, uh, at the Seattle, uh, film festival when it was first released. It came through on a, uh, through the virtual film festival. It was a last minute edition and I was blown away by it. Um, and, uh, was tracking its, uh, progress through the, um, Uh, through award season that year and was really hopeful that it would get a little more recognition than it did and was excited to see that uh, Janice picked it up. Um, When Janice Films uh, will release things and then um, uh, then Criterion picks them up, sometimes we don't get as many supplements uh, for them. Uh, I know that's been the case in previous years. Uh, But uh, I am really excited to have... uh, some commentary on this, it's a select scene commentary with uh, Jessica Bashir and uh, uh, poet uh, Ladon Osman. And this one also has three of uh, Bashir's shorts. Uh, Jessica Bashir had uh, one of her short films on uh, the Criterion channel back when uh, Criterion was a part of Filmstruck as well. So uh, they've had a long relationship with her And so, uh, again, I just I love this film. I love getting to see the progression of her work. And uh, I just uh, I love uh, continuing to embrace uh, these different modes of uh, documentary filmmaking and different uh, younger voices in cinema.
0: Yeah, I watched this several weeks ago, and it definitely is one that stuck with me. It is a mesmerizing, really, literally, kind of a trippy movie. It, it, you know, and it it does leave you with this kind of ambivalence because uh, it can make. The experience of chewing this cot, this leaf, uh, very enticing. I was like, "Oh, mm-hmm. where can I get my hands on some of that <laughs> stuff?" You know, but also, you know, you recognize that the cost that it has exacted yeah. on its society. So it's not a neither a celebration or a declaration of a war on drugs or anything of that sort. It's really just a, an acknowledgement of the profound. Uh, you know, sort of influence, yeah. for better or for worse. And and you're right. And she's she is the director. She's also the cinematographer. And yeah, you could just have so many you know completely mountable images that could just be pulled right from this film. It's really quite extraordinary. Just the the purely visual, as well as the soundtrack and just the the whole mood that it conjures up. It is quite a piece of work.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I find the interviews just really striking. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the way those are woven in in uh, voiceover uh uh throughout
0: and, so, yeah. yeah and even the process i mean this is a film that she spent 10 years putting together with multiple trips back and forth uh to mm-hmm. ethiopia so this uh yeah the background the making of uh, information is very illuminating i definitely agree yeah all right Aaron, you want to take us to your number two
2: certainly and my number two is jane campion's the piano um, also from January of uh, 2022. And I want to say that uh, this might have been the first UHD. No, I, I'm sorry. Uh, Hard Day's Night was the first UHD. So this is the second UHD announced for this year. And this is a film that I saw when I was young. I saw it when it came out in theaters. And I did like it. And I remember um, admiring the performances. And, you know, of course, I watched through award season. as Anna Paquin kind of became a sensation. Um, But at that age, you know, I didn't, I was a different person. I mean, it's been 30 years, so um, the film has aged a lot better than I, or I'm sorry, I've aged. uh, Never mind. Please cut that out, David. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Keep it in. Uh, but the thing is, I've I've learned a lot more about film in the the years that followed, and um, learned what to appreciate about the film about film. So uh, I was kind of blown away by this second viewing, um, and and also I think this is the first time that a UHD really did make an impact on me uh, from Criterion. Uh, this was pretty early, I, I believe there'd been a, a few towards the end of 2021, um, but this yeah this one was was truly special and um and also it's just because of the way it's shot the beautiful locations uh the it really gives a lot of opportunities for the uh the 4k restoration to really make an impact on the um, viewing experience and as a film it's uh a masterpiece uh, i i love it even more and um and it's kind of you know i just watched banshees of uh, I, I can't Remember?
0: In a Sheeran, I think is what I've heard. And, yeah.
2: and I kind of thought about this film because uh, you know it's a, it's a small number of characters, uh, one location, uh, a few lo- a few actual locations, but a remote area. And um, and I, I like that movie. Uh, I lo- a lot of people love it, but I think this one is like the the best minimalist um, movie with great performances. Like this, this could be a play, but it's not. And I'm glad it's not because uh, it's a, a beautiful. Film. Um, I won't say too much about the um, the actual plot because I I think this is one where learning too much could hurt hurt the experience. Um, I do want to say that Holly Hunter is an actress that I've loved for many years, and in fact, our first podcast episode was on Broadcast News, uh, where she played a very very different Mm. character. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I think this is up there for potentially her best performance ever, and. Ironically, she's playing um, somebody that can't speak, but has a piano. And really, the way and the piano I think is almost a character in itself. But the way she expresses herself through this piano is really special. And and, and just the little looks she gives, the way she emotes, and um, and uh, kind of maybe even overcompensates with uh, her, uh, her her facial expressions in order to convey something. Um, it's just really well done. and and she's not the only one Um, of course Anna Paquin you know she had a very funny Oscar speech but um, she uh, she, that they did discover a great talent with this film and um, and she deserved the Oscar I think she was excellent Mm -hmm. as well Uh, Sam Neill and Harvey Cattell also great I think Cattell really um, showed a side of himself a side of himself that um, you don't often see because he's often kind of the gritty character you know uh, we uh, he's been you know like Pulp fiction, I think, was he was in that around that time, uh, you know, completely different character. Um, but he does play somebody that's kind of a, um, you know, an everyman, I'd say. Uh, I wouldn't even say like blue collar, I would say just, uh, not, not an equal intellectually with, um, with, with Campion's character. Oh, I'm sorry, with uh, Holly Hunter's character. Um, and but he does so with a, um, a delicacy that, uh, that is, is really just. I really just appreciate his performance as well, um, and I think all of them brought great performances out of each other. So yeah, this is really just a, a great, um, a great film, and it's also a great uh, uh, Criterion edition. Um, speaking of which, we had commentaries. So I want to say all three of my yeah all three of my picks have commentaries. So that that might say something. Um, <laughs> but there's uh, there's also a, 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 I'm not going to go through the supplements, but there's another one that was. Um, called the piano at 25 and that's uh so i guess that would be late um 2010s uh just a few years ago and that's um when we, that was um, uh, uh jane campion talking to uh jan chapman who was a producer and that was really good all, all of the supplements were great and i ended up watching this i think three times in the month mm. of january so it just mm. really made an impact uh if you have not seen the piano please uh, don't hesitate get this get this edition it's great
0: excellent very very good and it is definitely one of the more stacked criterion releases of the year so very worthy uh, number two pick oh and right, jordan i Ar- sorry david oh, go ahead.
2: also a phenomenal cover cover by one of the best co- oh. cover artists uh, greg ruth so
0: yeah and it seems to be sort of thematically connected to another jane campion release uh, last year's power of the dog that uh, was a late 2022 uh, 4K. They're kind of almost like a matching set, even though they were released quite a few months apart, and of course the films were made decades apart.
2: Uh, another amazing film, yes. Yeah. yeah, excellent.
0: All right. Jordan, you want to give us your number two?
3: Sure, my number two is Spine 1115 Adoption by Marta Mesaros. Um, I am half Hungarian, and so I was attracted to this release. It also says something about I think why I'm innately also attracted to Czech cinema and all Eastern European Mm -hmm. cinema. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And my dad was born in Budapest in 1944. Uh, Mezerosh was born a little bit earlier in 1931, but one thing they had in common was they both spent about five years in Budapest before growing up in uh, a different land. Mezerosh grew up in the Soviet Union, and my dad and his family immigrated to the states in 1949. So um, I don't have a lot of firsthand knowledge of Hungary. My dad, being um, growing up with you know uh, Hungarian parents, was kind of interested in being an American. And so when he raised with my mom, when they when they raised Joshua and I, we weren't really given a lot of uh, you know Hungarian cultural heritage or even cuisine or language or anything like that so i've always been very curious about it i've been to hungary once and spent some time in budapest and and really enjoyed myself but i guess all this to say i have some bias toward this film (laughs) but uh Mm -hmm. i was Mm -hmm. (laughs) i was uh very very happy to learn uh that mesros who i didn't really know much about is is a real heavyweight I mean, this is, this is a really brilliant film and, and she's got like 60 films or something in, in her filmography. So I've still only seen this work by her, but I, I'm super excited to, to visit more of her work, especially since if you watch some of the special features, you learn that there were a lot of very consistent themes that she revisited over the years. And um, this just happens to be her kind of breakout film in terms of garnering an international relationship with the, uh, other filmmakers and critics and receiving awards it is her fifth film i think and she won the golden bear at the berlin international film festival that year which was i think the first year that a hungarian film had competed for that and also the first year that a woman had won that award so it was um it 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 kind of paved the way for her to continue to make films for the rest of her life and i'm very glad that she was uh, able to do that the story uh, is about uh, largely two women who are circumstantially kind of estranged from their communities, surviving on these conditional, probably temporary relationships. And they briefly connect um, and help each other gain a, a kind of, again, temporary new family structure. Um, but also, they assist each other in, in pursuing what, you know, what they each want, with which is, again, a new family structure for for the main character Kata. She wants a child, and for Anna, the the younger woman from a nearby children's home, she wants to get married, but she's underage. And they both seem to imagine that this new family that they can form um, will be the means of escaping their current state of desperation. So there there are there are certainly connection points um, to be found between the two characters, although they're they're leading very different lives. The cinematography is, is really remarkable. It's a lot of roaming camera, sensuous close-ups, striking lighting, and very interesting, compelling compositions. Um, that guy's name is uh, Laioche Koltai. Um, there's this great score with uh, sort of these pensive bells and this mournful uh, woodwinds, I believe, um, that carry the main melody. Kata works at a factory where she's one of... Um, Multiple workers, mostly women, um are sort of sanding sort of mass-produced pieces of wood. So, so all of this sanding um, of imperfections kind of mimics the the act of looking at one's life uh, that both Cotton and Honor are doing, like constantly finding the areas that could or should be removed, you know, to make it better. Um, but literally in the factory, these women uh, are <laughs> frighteningly, at the end of the day, they're all covered in this fine sawdust. Uh, and certainly, they're inhaling it. Um, you know, they're not wearing masks. Um, so there's this there's this very uncomfortable idea of the the amount of labor that's you know the, the the strain on their bodies. But then symbolically also that these imperfections are are going into their lungs, like from the surface uh, to the inside. And it it also continues to speak about this difficulty of reshaping one's life through this targeted process of elimination. Like, will that work? Does it have consequences? Uh, The uh, main character, Kata, she's she's a 43-year-old widow. She lives alone uh, on this river. The river is another sort of reminder of erosion. Um, She, at home, kind of works on similar projects. She's making these picture frames, these containers without images, these sort of aspirational containers. And these girls from the nearby children's home kind of infiltrate her space. When they first show up, it, it it's it's interesting that a line of dialogue by um, I think Anna uh, asks her if uh, if she's scared of of the girls at the children's home, and there is a kind of ominous presence to them initially. They do they do feel like they potentially pose a kind of threat, just because I guess there's so many of them. That they're so happy to just intrude on her on her property and into her personal space. Um, Anna wants something specific from um, Kata. She wants to be able to. Um, continue her love affair with a boyfriend in a nearby, nearby town. It's cold um, in the current season, and she needs, she needs places to sleep with her boyfriend. And Kata initially rejects this proposal, um, telling Anna that she doesn't want to have strangers around her. And I was struck also by this interesting idea, these contradictions that, like, of course, this child that she wants... Um, kata wants to get pregnant you know at 43 she gets a physical examination she's she's healthy um and kind of without a mate though her husband has died and her long-term uh relationship is with this married man who has another family and when she proposes having a child with him he's he's not interested at all and she accepts that but of course a new child is a kind of stranger also and she she fails initially to see that anna is offering her a kind of uh, you know Child-parent relationship, even though it's temporary and comes with a large amount of baggage, um, Kata struggles to write this letter to her uh, her married lover. I think she kind of wants, she wants to apologize for asking for this child, but she she isn't sorry really, and uh, she's also I think paralyzed by this the example of this other letter by one of Anna's friends that just. Um, is so bracing in his honesty. And she, this, this girl is, is writing it to kind of break up with her, her mother, which also I think ends up being, um, all of these signs of malfunctioning parent, child relationships kind of haunt the film, just like what is often pointed out. Like there's this, there's this audio landscape of, of dogs barking. So there's this quiet sense of alarm that kind of permeates the experience of the film that doesn't usually break through into, manifesting as dramatic moments except in one moment when um kata slaps anna just kind of spont spontaneously it's it's um it's only on a second watch that i i think there's a smile there's anna is crying after her boyfriend leaves and and there's a little bit of a smile that i think could be triggering because it could possibly be a mocking smile um could possibly be pointing out that you know that the the quasi parent child relationship that that has kind of fallen caught his lap here is is kind of making a parody of her wishes and it's and, and she might even be jealous of that anna is pursuing you know she's she's young enough to to i think pursue a family life that in some ways Kata knows that has passed her by the um, the packages uh, is is really nice um, there's there's tons of uh, bonus features that really gives you a broad understanding of this filmmaker and her life. Um, she is still alive, by the way. But um, there's a, a short film, in addition to the documentary features, called Blowball. Um, that's also very good. So it's another indication that this is not uh, this is not a one-off in terms of uh, creative achievement. So that is my that is my number two adoption.
0: Another great summary, Jordan. Thank you for walking us through that. Uh Laszlo Sabo is a name or at least a face, but maybe not a name that you recognize, but he was in a few of those uh mid sixties Godard films. He was I think in Parole Le fou and Made in USA. And that yes. was a really fun surprise to see. I, I know that guy. Like I knew I'm watching a Hungarian film. This is the first Hungarian film in the Criterion Collection. So I'm not expecting any familiar faces or names. So like I know that guy. <laughs> I'm doing my Leonardo DiCaprio thing there, pointing at the screen. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, yeah, quite a pleasant surprise. I agree. I agree. I didn't highlight that, but he plays um, He plays the married man that Kata's having a relationship with. Yeah. On one of the special features, she describes the relationship as... Um, you know, she, she understands he's sort of part of the this elite circle of, of creatives in in, in and around Paris, but that he was Hungarian and he was sort of nostalgically drawn mm. to continue to come back to the country. And that's how he ended up being able to, you know, make a relationship with Miserosh.
0: Okay, well, you know, Jordan, I have the the task of following up a very, very insightful summary with my number two, which I have to say, even before <laughs> I heard your uh, recap of adoption, I was like, "This is pretty fluffy stuff here," but I I'm gonna go with it. I got to be honest. Uh, my number two is the girl can't help it, <laughs> directed by Frank <laughs> Tashlin, and of course, starring the one and only Jane Mansfield. But really, it's the all star. Uh, rock and roll cast of uh, performers that I think seals the deal no no disrespect towards either Jane Mansfield who I think uh, well is it a performance is it just a, a presence that she exerts on this film um, a fascinating figure and no pun intended there but uh, a really remarkable document of the dawn of rock and roll uh the movie itself uh, the the plot and, and all of the character developments it's it is very silly throwaway stuff um, you know there's an involvement with a mob boss who wants to get his glamorous girlfriend a singing career because it's an easy way to make money and you know there's all these shenanigans that go on but but what's captured in this film um, is just an incredible lineup of of you know prime rock and roll in the very infancy of that of that uh, musical form. Uh, As far as uh, this commercial presentation and all of that, certainly I know rock and roll has cultural roots that go back into the... 20s, 30s, and 40s. But this is a 1956 film that's got Little Richard, Fats Domino, Gene Vincent in those blue caps, The Platters, Eddie Cochran, as well as several uh, lesser (laughs) known acts, uh, and for good reason. But even that variety, even some of the bands like The Chuckles and and some of the other uh, would-be entertainers, uh, given very generous slices of screen time to perform their music, uh, this is when Hollywood is kind of scrambling for some new formats, so they're doing widescreen cinemascope here. They have some good fun with that uh, at the beginning of the film as they kind of stretch the screen into a new aspect ratio to uh, you know, the amazement and presumed delight of uh, viewers of that time. I just have to say, I've watched this film sort of like Aaron with a piano. I've watched it probably four times since it came out this past summer. I showed it to my dad, which was great because he recalls seeing this movie back in the day and even seeing, like, he saw Little Richard live back in the 1950s, which just kind of blows my mind to think about what an experience that must have been. So this is kind of going on that pure enjoyment, the fact that this one got the most spins in my my uh, uh, Blu-ray deck over the past uh, year from any Criterion releases, I got to give it its props. So it came in as my number two. My alternate pick was one that maybe I could have just, I, I just received as a Christmas gift. That was Todd Haynes' The Velvet Underground. A different type of uh, musical excursion, you might say, but one that I, I imagine I will be revisiting that one numerous times in the weeks and months ahead. But my number two... Just nothing but fun, and again, Frank Tashlin, the director, also made some of the greatest Looney Tunes prior to his uh, work as a as a regular filmmaker. Uh, so yeah, I I just really enjoyed all the playful elements of this of this film, the package, lots of good supplements. I mean, we can pretty much take that for granted. That that put Jane Mansfield in the context of a real human being not just the cartoon figure that she kind of made herself into um, for for particular reasons and with a strategy in mind. Uh, It's just a really fascinating snapshot of a a formative era uh, of a musical form as well as other uh, sort of pop culture trends that uh, continue to reverberate to this day. So, uh, yeah, I enjoyed the film quite a bit, and that's why it's where it's at, fairly high up on my list of best releases of the year.
2: Hey, David, um, Jill couldn't make it, but if she were here, I'm pretty sure she would be giving you the uh, Leo clap uh, meme <laughs> for that because she, she's a yeah. big fan. Oh, yeah.
0: I, 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 and I, I wondered if double indemnity might be up high on Jill's list there. And I, I hope, Jill, if you're listening, go ahead and drop your top three <laughs> in the comments somewhere because I'd like to kind of get your insights uh, when you have a chance to, to share that with us. But, yeah, this is this is a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, more to come on that actually
0: david <laughs> excellent okay very good okay let's uh bring it out well no no, no, not bring it on home we're gonna have a little bit of conversation after this but let's go ahead and get our number ones uh rolling here so josh you've got the honors give us your number one criterion release of 2022
1: all right uh you know my number one pick of this year was a film that was really high up on my favorite films that were released the year it came out uh which was uh, 2020. Um, and that is Garrett Bradley's time. Uh, this is a film that to me is, uh, again, like with fire day, uh, I think a just stellar example of what you can do with the art of documentary filmmaking. I tend to be pretty, um, uh, pretty uh, rigorous in uh, what I want from documentary. Uh, there are so many docu-series and um, uh, so many kind of documentaries that get dumped on streaming services that are kind of, they're, they're cheaper by the dozen now. Um, everybody's putting things with, cheap infographics and swirling special effects and drone shots to wow us with spectacle. And uh, I'm, I'm looking for things that are going to um, be really f- formal exercises or going to be really uh, rigorous verite uh, f- formal exercises as well. And uh, I think what Garrett Bradley does here in this uh, uh, exploration of America's uh, carceral system is uh, just phenomenal. Um, It is a look at a family that is uh, seeking prison justice reform, that is trying to get um, the husband and father out of uh uh, an egregiously long uh, prison sentence and the garrett bradley uses present day footage combined with home video footage and uses this to give us the weight and the sense of time passing so we'll get a shot from home video footage of a five-year-old child And then it will suddenly cut to that same child graduating from dental school. And you see how much time has elapsed, how much time this uh, man that has been incarcerated has missed. Uh, And uh, it's so profoundly moving. It is uh, a film that I've seen multiple times, and every time I'm reduced to tears by the end. Uh, This is a... Uh, just profoundly empathetic, profoundly human, uh, profoundly moving look at the injustice within our society, and yet it never becomes a polemic. It never becomes just a um, uh, a film that is reduced to uh, statistics or reduced to talking heads uh, giving us uh, a lecture on... Um, the state of prisons, and uh, it it really grounds us in one family's struggle uh, in prison reform and and what they go through, um, and uh, it's a a beautiful film. Uh, this is a film that's part of uh, Criterion's uh, partnership with Amazon to get some of the Amazon originals onto disc. And just like last year, when I selected *Minding the Gap* as, uh, which was a Hulu original, as my one of my selections, I think there is an invaluable service to taking these films that only exist in the streaming space and bringing them into a definitive physical release. I think um, we're seeing, uh, as we're seeing, streaming services jettison uh, original works and. Making them unavailable for for anyone to own uh, or for anyone to see. I think that uh, it is crucial to to have these films be available in some sort of edition like this. Um, and we're getting again great things. We're getting a, a, a audio commentary. We have interviews with the uh, protagonists, the the subjects of the film. We have uh, a short documentary by Garrett Bradley that ties in really, uh, directly to the, the, the film time and, um, uh, is a really beautiful companion piece. It was actually envisioned as, as two films that would be, that would exist side by side. So, um, I just, I, I really am, um, I continue to, uh, be grateful that Criterion is willing to partner with streaming services to give us, Uh, work that even though you can see it on for free on a streaming service that you have a subscription to um, I am really grateful that they have taken the time to give us these definitive physical media editions of these works
0: yeah, that's a very moving film, Josh. I definitely agree. It's been some months since I watched it since it came out earlier in the year, but again, it's another film with a message and an impact that's that's stuck with me. And I certainly see how it uh, dovetails with your own advocacy work, uh, just looking for justice, looking for equity and and uh, and and wisdom and how you know, people who have committed crimes and, and the person at, at the center of this did commit a crime but is 60 years really warranted. uh it's a yeah. it's a pretty powerful uh you know portrait of uh of a situation of a reality that many people live with uh anonymously and and kind of forgotten or swept into the gears of the system. So yeah, definitely a very worthy entry and I I echo what you say about uh, you know people who say oh why do you need to buy this on disc it's already there on Amazon, you know, but uh you know <laughs> those deals do not last forever and we find them yeah. very fleeting. Uh, you know, why they take them off, uh, you know, we can never really fully fathom the, the reasons behind that, but it is, it is good when this very worthwhile, um, movie making kind of gets its uh, place in a more of a durable medium. So, great choice. Uh, well, listeners, Aaron West seems to have fallen off the call. He would be coming up next, and we will hopefully get a chance to hear from him soon, Uh But, yeah, we've got a little technical difficulty going on. So, Jordan, I'm going to go ahead and send it over your way to get your number one, and then we'll uh, weave Aaron's contributions in here one or another. So, Jordan, what's your number one for the year?
3: Sure, of course. So, despite a cover that I think doesn't quite nail the mise-en-scene of the film, my favorite of the year is Exotica by Adam Ogoyan. Uh, this is a film I've known for a long time. I was very interested in the work, um, of the, of the nineties and, and I've seen most of them. And this is a real standout. And it's, it's for those who don't know, it's, you know, featuring Bruce Greenwood, Sarah Polly, and the always incredible Goyan regulars, Arsene Kanjan and Elias Coteus It is a uh, uncomfortable film. It's It kind of takes an interest in uncomfortable intimacies. Um, it's not a movie about sex. Uh, I know that, that that was certainly something that the film had to contend with in terms of marketing. <laughs> yeah, those original it, posters
0: kind of made... Well, and it is set in a strip club, so there is an element of truth to that. But yeah, that is not the the primary draw.
3: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, certainly not the primary draw for uh, for me. Um, although it, it can at times be a, um, a film that, uh, that has sensuous imagery. Um, but it's really it uses that it uses sort of the the atmosphere of a of a strip club um, to look at exteriority versus interiority, like the primacy of appearances, but also the inaccessibility of surfaces, and it and it presents this story of uh, a group of people that initially we don't understand how or why they are connected, but it it ends up being a, a quite a closed circuit, you know, very insulated world revolving around this 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 cryptic story um this this central chain of events that does ultimately get revealed by the end of the film but in a really beautiful way even once you have more pieces of the puzzle the film never releases its mystery like it maintains you know this insistence on ambiguity and absurdity frankly so it 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 kind of falls under the umbrella of a things are not what they seem kind of narrative, but here the falsehoods are are somewhat novel, and what I mean by that is that films more commonly give us characters who appear conventional, you know, like the Hitchcockian, you know, dangerous suburb where things appear conventional on the outside, but it is a veneer covering some type of fundamental deviance that, that can be, you know, peeled away and revealed here, most of Agoyan's characters are the opposite. You know, they present themselves as kind of coarse or indecent, you know, like the club, um, interested in appearing otherworldly, but are significantly more gentle and decent and familiar on the inside. And the characters come off as lynching in a way, like... um there are previous films of a Agoyan uh, that also kind of trade in this kind of the, the the sort of absurdity that kind of feels dangerous on the exterior. But but again, the centers are, are, are warmer, whereas Lynchian characters are often even more dangerous on the inside mm-hmm. than they appear <laughs> on the outside. Um, so his, his characters are deliberately enigmatic and misleading, and they mislead themselves, you know, about their true natures and about their most relevant motives. Um, they're there is an urgency to reveal truth i think all the characters are are genuinely interested in that but they kind of get in their own way um, they wear these uncomfortable truths on the outside all this subversiveness and self-hatred and mental illness is on the surface but again it's almost a disguise it's a distraction you know the, the film tells us in one of the or maybe the first scene of the film that dissecting someone's face and gestures will tell you what a person is hiding you know what is really going on um, this is a scene that takes place at an airport where the security is is watching through one-way glass um, at one of the other characters whose luggage is being inspected. Um, but it turns out that that is largely untrue, at least in the case of this story like physical gestures and and faces um, or things like a dance on a stage or or the drawing of a gun they can mislead you uh, just as easily to what someone says or what what they claim to be true. And I think what the film, at least to me, seems to, to impart, is that we should be looking for neither actions nor words. We, we should be looking for things that are not absolute at all. We should be looking for the essence of a person and this this continuity, this thread, whether it's elusive or undefined or shifting or contradictory, it is it is this essence. Um, and, and having a kind of flexible sensitivity to that, we can learn not just how to see others, but of course, hopefully, our, ourselves as well. And, um, this, uh, this, this commentary on the pursuit of desire, which is what ties into the sort of the sexual landscape of the film. Um, it, I think it, I think it's interested in in talking about Mm -hmm. desire as a commodity that we even, we even might tell ourselves that we're pursuing something that we see as desire but it might actually be something else you know it might actually just be fracture like in the case of, of Francis uh, the the Greenwood character who's a who's an auditor who had, who's at the center of this um, of this story where his his daughter had been murdered and he wasn't even implicated and it's like Vis-à-vis the implication, he almost becomes guilty, and he starts uh, embracing some rituals that that really seem, on the outside, to be quite questionable. Um, or in the case of Eric, like there's this, this deliberate self-loathing, and it's it's quite moving, but it's um, uh, it's it's no less destructive than the things that that the other characters are trading in, like this deliberate vacancy with the uh, with Christina, who's one of the central characters and a dancer at the club. Who has this very strange and again not fully explained or justified relationship with the with the tax auditor who who lost his daughter, um, and and sometimes this this pursuit of desire is it's not desire sometimes it's just simply amusement as is the case probably with uh, with the char- character Thomas, who was the one who has been seen by the uh, airport security at the beginning of the film, he's importing you know rare and exotic eggs for this uh, pet store that he runs, uh, sort of an illicit trade. Um, the uh, which further ask questions of you know what is exotic like the, in the title like like what is what is unfamiliar and what what can be what can be um, I think commodified and paxured as uh, as 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 an object of desire. The, um, the what kind of relationships can be purchased is another question related to commodification. Like what is moral? What is authentic? What is possible? These characters have legitimate troubling neuroses, um, and and there are difficult, unanswered questions that the film poses, but it's not interested in sort of like petting our head about. It doesn't want to hold our hand about these questions. It just wants to ask them, which is a kind of approach to storytelling that we do not see that much of these days. Um, there, There's a real... I think interest in modern filmmaking in in, in sort of closing those circuits. And I, I really love visiting a film like this that says, No, actually this the story doesn't exist if we close the circuit. So Yeah, they're yeah. gonna leave
0: the viewer in kind of an unsettled place where you you know, the story is done, the film has run its course, but you're still gonna be wrestling with some of those implications and questions. Yeah, I I agree. Mm. I, I don't need to have I, I won't say it's condescending, you know, to, to close those circuits as you put it. But sometimes it's like, you know, keep them open. Keep the creative possibilities there. And uh, I, I definitely appreciated uh, Adam McGowan's, um approach to this story because it could have been handled in, in various different ways, even with the same character, same setup. Uh, but, yeah, a very impressive piece of work, and I definitely would like to see more of his uh, films coming into the collection. I hope this opens that door. Me too. All right. Well, we have found out that Aaron was hit by a power outage, and so that definitely puts his return to this particular recording session in <laughs> significant jeopardy. Oh, no. Yeah, it's a it's a drag. But oh. hopefully, we will find a way to salvage his track. And uh, I've already messaged him to see if maybe we he and I can get together and record uh, his number one portion, assuming everything else goes well. But since it seems like he's going to be dealing with, uh, looks like it was caused by some kind of an accident, like a Transformer got knocked out. So mm-hmm. not going to be fixable in the next uh, several minutes for sure. So I'm going to go ahead and proceed with my number one, and uh, we will find a way to get Aaron's voice in here to, to wrap up this episode properly. So, <laughs> well, that's, that is the life on the uh, budget end of the podcasting world, folks, but <laughs> we'll make the best of it and certainly hope that, uh, you know, things are restored in Aaron's neck of the woods pretty soon. Uh, so my number one, Jordan, again, thank you for your very, very uh, insightful uh, treatment of, uh, of a pretty fascinating and deep film. Here's my number one for the year, and I have to say I've, I'm breaking all kinds of rules. I'm the one person who's chosen a box set, even though this was a year where Criterion really didn't blow us out of the water with the, uh, with the, with the depth or the range of their box sets. In fact, it took them quite a while to... to get into the year before they even released one, and that was the Martin Scorsese World Cinema Project number four, a very suitable and, and eclectic mix of films for sure. But I actually went with three films by Mae Zetterling, and the other rule that I broke is I don't even physically own this disc quite yet, <laughs> but I, I do consider it uh, my favorite Criterion release of the year simply on the strength of the films that I've watched on the Criterion channel, because pretty much the whole contents of that box set is available through the Criterion channel. And when that was announced as a December release... Uh, a few months ago, I I was immediately taken like, oh, this looks interesting, look at those cast members that's like Ingmar Bergman movies from the mid-1960s back kind of when he was in that uh, Faith Trilogy or The Silence of God Trilogy, whatever you want to call it, three films by Ing- Ingmar Bergman is how Criterion rele- a film trilogy by Ingmar Bergman is, is how Criterion released it well, May Zetterling was actually an actress in one of his very first film projects, a film called uh, Torment, where he wrote the screenplay and uh, Alf Schoberg, the direct directed that film. That's a part of the Eclipse series set number one. Mae Zetterling, I think, was still a teenager at the time, uh, which was the kind of mid 1940s. Uh, well, here she is 20 um, some years later as a filmmaker herself doing three films Loving Couples, uh, Night Games, and The Girls. And these films just absolutely blew me away. Like I say, I was already set up and predisposed to like them because of the just the the, the commonalities that they they share with uh, Ingmar Bergman movies of this same period. Um, but. You know, and and Sven Nykvist is even the cinematographer on the first one, Loving Couples. But you're seeing Harriet Anderson, Bibi Anderson, Ingrid Thulin, uh, Gunnar Lindblom, uh, even um, Erlen Josephson and Gunnar Bjornstrand show up. Uh, so you know, so you've got so many elements and looks and feels that are similar to Ingmar Bergman films of this time. But Zetterling takes all of those elements in her own direction, and these are three films that I think are just, you know, they kind of succeed in topping each other in terms of provocation, of creative filmmaking, of, of really uh, shaking the the you know shaking the the foundations a bit of of uh, how a, a female filmmaker could express herself and these films actually got her in some trouble because she was so forward, so. Uh you know, really so so uh, transgressive in some ways. And I mean, seriously, there is some stuff in there, in particular Night Games, which uh, was was only shown privately at the Venice Film Festival and somewhat infamously caused Shirley Temple Black, uh, who was an adult, but of course the Shirley Temple, uh, to resign from the board of the San Francisco Film Festival when that festival agreed to take Night Games in it. Oh, it's also got the kid from uh, from. Pers- persona, <laughs> that that the young boy you know who puts his hand up on the screen he's in in this film as well and you know so I, I'm kind of skimming the surface here but you know this this is a filmmaker Mae Zetterling who wanted to be taken seriously she was a woman with artistic ambitions who really pressed herself uh, and and really challenged just a lot of convention, conventional thinking about women's place in society, uh, the woman's ability, a woman's ability to make a film make uh, make films that are challenging and um, pressing the boundaries of what could be expressed and filmmaking technique. She, she did style herself after Bergman, after Fellini, after some of the other, uh, you know, influential movers and shakers of art house cinema at that time. And you know, drew some very critical, negative reviews in the process. Um, but I was absolutely fascinated by these films. I'm not going to give you much of a breakdown just because of time and because there are three films. But they they all just, they all explore different aspects of. Um, femininity and and how women are expected or allowed to participate in society from various levels. And to see um, some of these actresses like B.B. Anderson, Harriet Anderson, you know, I've already named the names, um, they're coming out of their prime work with Ingmar Bergman. They, they are, you know, they're maturing in some respects and they're also allowed to cut loose and show a different range of their acting abilities than what you know, Bergman's often very taut, very introspective films. And while they do incredible performances under Bergman's direction, uh, Mae Zetterling just brought out different aspects of these characters. And I was just so delighted to see it's like where did this come from i mean i've been a bergman fan for quite a few years now and i i knew the name maze Zetterling, but i did not have any idea that these films would impact me the way that they did so i'm going to be you know getting a copy of <laughs> that disc very soon it's uh it's not really even a traditional box set. i think it just comes in a regular plastic case with you know slots for three different discs but have either of you guys had a chance to check any of those out yet or not
3: no it's a pretty recent release i i haven't seen it, these
0: it, but i'm intrigued it's it's super recent but i only watched them just because i really wanted to get a get a glimpse at him and when i did it's like wow i mean th- there are some parts where there are some offensive things i mean the the young boy that i talked about um let's see if i can get get his name here um in night games the uh yeah, jorgen lindstrom he's he's the young guy there is a place when he's underage and, and he is naked on screen and he's being sort of Playfully seduced, and and there's even a little bit of a masturbation thing going on there. So, I I do want to give viewers a little bit of warning that that there are some there are some triggering things that happen in these films. Uh, they they don't go down easy, but the, but they're still really remarkable. Um, yeah, just there's there's some real forward thinking. <laughs> there there are some things that feel like movies that were made twenty, thirty, forty years later. Uh, that that May Zetterling goes there where you weren't maybe expecting that. So I'll leave it at that. Maybe I'll just create a little bit of intrigue. I I I definitely look forward to uh, discussing this set with Trevor Barrett on our Inside the Box podcast one of these days. I may bump that one up towards the front of the queue uh, just because I'm so intrigued and definitely want to hear what Trevor's take on it is, And, and I will definitely be returning to those films very shortly once I get that disc in hand.
1: Oh, yeah, I, I have it sitting on my uh, on my shelf. Uh, I got it during one of the more recent sales and am very... I, I almost uh, started watching them this month uh, because I was uh, hoping to potentially put this on my list but didn't get around to it before we recorded. Uh, so this is one that is is high
0: up on my list to watch soon.
3: David, would you recommend watching them in sequential order or starting with night games or...
0: No, I think I think in sequential order, I mean that that's just my default go to I mean, the yeah. girls, I guess is the one that is the most you know widely recognized these days, and it is it's it's pretty outstanding. it's a an adaptation of Aristophanes Les Estrada um so it's a you know it's got a really and you know. Humorous uh, application of the story about women withholding mm-hmm. sexual uh, relations with men until they stop all the fighting. Of course, Spike Lee several years ago uh, adapted the same story with Chirac, which was again one of my favorite films released that year. Mm-hmm. And I think it kind of marked a little bit of a revival or upswing of, of Spike Lee and his, you know, in, over the course of his career that was pretty well regarded, although I thought still under recognized for what I thought was a really impressive accomplishment. So it sort of takes some of those same dynamics. And, again, you've got uh, B.B. Anderson, Harriet Anderson, and Gunnar Lindbaum all, again, just really cutting loose. They've each got their own characters, their own relationships. So that's probably the one that's going to be the most uh, sort of well-known and publicized. But I'd say work your way through it. And then the supplemental features where, again, you get to hear May Zetterling's voice come through as far as her directorial intentions and uh, just her approach to the material it's really good stuff. Um I yeah I'm 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 very eager to see what other people's reactions are. I can see that it might be polarizing uh, just as it was back in the day. She had some really incredibly harsh negative reviews that I think are it's not warranted, but I can understand that people of a certain temperament might be either offended or just put off by uh by her approach, but I just appreciate her her fearlessness of just really kind of going full force, full speed ahead, and, and uh, taking advantage of the opportunities that she had to make films, uh, and mm-hmm. she did continue to do that. But but uh, yeah, she she went for it, and I just really appreciate that uh, artistic ambition.
3: Great number one pick, yeah. I'm looking forward to it.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that, guys. Well, hello, Aaron. (laughs) We are back. (laughs) A little bit out of sequence here, but uh, good to be talking to you again. We're going to go ahead and interject your uh, number one Criterion release of 2022, as well as your comments looking ahead to 2023. We'll just kind of splice that right into the middle of the transition and the junction there. And uh, I'll leave it to our listeners to figure out how it all flows together. (laughs) (laughs) Trust you guys in your judgment to, uh, you know, to sort out the sort out the issues here as we you know kind of fill in the gap because there was a pretty significant uh, power outage in your neighborhood you want to just tell us a little bit about that event and then uh, how it affected your ability to participate in our best of 2022 episode
2: yeah i'll just say there were lights and then there weren't <laughs> and i and it was right before i was going to give my number one um so you guys were wondering what happened to Aaron? Uh, and meanwhile, what happened is a car about four blocks away crashed into a, a, a gas station and hit a, uh, I guess a pole. I don't know if you call them telephone poles or what now. And um and it, it, it was really the the car looked terrible, and it's a miracle that the person lived. Uh, in fact, at first they said it was a fatality. So I was like, yeah, you know, the podcast is important, but you know, that's this is different kind of kind of situation but um but yeah they made it out and we got power about 2 a.m and uh now it's saturday and i'm glad you're available david
0: yeah, yeah, I'm a little taking a break from the Michigan Wolverines football game <laughs> here, which hasn't been going so well. Maybe we'll we'll turn it around. But uh, in the meantime, I've got some guests over as well. It's New Year's Eve at my place, and we're going to have a little social time. But uh, nice. before we do that, let's go ahead and get your input here. Uh, you, uh, We had arrived at the number one choices of the Criterion Collection releases, of course, as I've already kind of made clear or at least implied, uh, this is kind of the personal favorites. We're not trying to make objective facts as far as this is the best, but uh, go ahead and give us your number one release of the year.
2: Well, I'm glad that nobody else had this. So I, because I think this, this uh, title belongs in the conversation, but my number one is Malcolm X from Spike Lee. It's a, a Spike Lee joint. And, um, yeah, it's a relatively recent uh, release. I think it came out, I want to say October or November. I think it was November of 2022. And, yeah, it was November,
0: uh, right around the time of Wally, kind of that right, end of the right. month, uh, end of the Barnes & Noble sale, all that.
2: And by the way, Wally was a really good disc as well. I, I was yeah, really yeah. impressed by that. I, it almost made my list, but it's hard to choose just three. But Malcolm X, I had seen it when it came out, um, I sort of like the piano but you know civil rights and that sort of history you know when I was in my 20s you know it, I liked the movie and I thought it was very well done but I didn't know Malcolm X or the significance of Malcolm X um as an individual and you know his mark on history or, or really any of the civil rights of course I knew Martin Luther King and and um many others uh, but um so I, I watched this movie uh, when I was a kid and I I, I enjoyed it I say kid um but it was really great rediscovering this, um, you know, thirty some odd years later, uh, with uh, you know a history degree and had, having researched um, a lot of the uh, the old South, which of course was a, a kind of a vital uh, geographical area for uh, the civil rights movement, and um, and you know I started learning about people like Malcolm X, and uh, if you don't mind, first all, I just want to say that Spike Lee. I mean, we are so lucky to have him as a filmmaker. And I, I say as a filmmaker, I don't mean a black filmmaker, um, even though you know, there have been a lot of new black filmmakers added to the collection. Um, and their work has been excellent. Um, I put Spike Lee against really anybody modern, um, toe to toe, you know, I, I just think he's had quite a body of work and I'm thrilled that it continues and he's, he's still making uh, really, really strong films. Um, this one, of course, in, this was in his career not too long after Do the Right Thing. I, I, I don't have his filmography in front of me, but I think he may, may have done one or two in between this. Um, so he was really just an up-and-comer, but he had, of course, Do the Right Thing was massive. Um, and he wanted to do this. You know, he, I think he'd been preparing Malcolm X even before um, Do the Right Thing or uh, uh, School Days, I think is his first one. And um, it's not an easy film to shoot, and it's uh, not a not a cheap film to shoot, and um, and he actually and this came out in the special features and the commentary, he had a lot of pressure from the studios, and in fact, um, you know he, I think his vision would have been compromised if he was not who he was, um, and so we all know Spike Lee, um, you know he he has a backbone. He's going to stand up for himself. He's going to stand up for his films. And he did with this film, and he actually, um, it's a pretty classic story, he reached out to uh, a number of uh, famous uh, people, famous black people, um, including like Oprah, Magic Johnson, you name it, to get the remainder of the film funded. And uh, thank God he did, because, you know, his vision was realized, and not the studios, and uh, he told the story on his own terms. So yeah, I, I love this movie. And what I, what's weird is I don't often like biopics. I don't know why. Like especially the ones that get nominated for Oscars. Uh, stuff like Mister Turner I liked where there's a little bit of artistry. But I generally just it's just my my taste. I don't like movies where there's somebody impersonating somebody and they tell um, you know the story of his life for the most part. Um, so this I, I shouldn't like this movie because that's exactly what this is. Um, however. It's Denzel Washington is also special and, and this is a special mm-hmm. performance for him. and he really uh, he covers the gamut. and sure, it is an imitation, but there's a lot of uh, himself in there. And uh, you can feel the conviction of uh, Denzel. In fact, there was one, I think it was the commentary uh, that um, Spike Lee mentioned that he started out giving a Malcolm X speech and ended up improvising and uh, continuing with his own words, um, which is quite remarkable because he didn't lose a step. So it's, it's a special film. It's also in 4K, so it l- looked amazing. Uh, I would said that with the piano, that that was one of the, um, the first uh, 4Ks that kind of knocked me out. Um, Mal- Malcolm X was one of the recent ones, and Wally especially. <laughs> but I uh, don't want to... Those are tough, two, two tough films to, to um, compare. One, what I love about this movie also is that um, Spike Lee did not sugarcoat Malcolm X's story. You know, he did not... Pre- portray him as this ideologue who should be uh, worshipped um, because Ma- Malcolm X's life was not was not um, you know smooth. There, there were some problematic areas and there was a uh, evolution I should say maybe or maybe a journey um, and actually the way, where he takes a trip to I won't spoil because that's in the latter half of the movie but um, you, he kind of arrives at a really um, powerful point of his life, I think uh, his, his most powerful. And his most um, palatable, palatable uh, for for people. So, uh, Spike Lee, uh, you know, he he talks about his time with um, with some some questionable um, views. Of course, his early t- uh, time with um, you know with getting in trouble, being a, a criminal. So I'm glad that's in there because that is who part of who Malcolm X is. And um, and sorry, you were going to say something. I-
0: well, no, no. I, I really appreciate your take on this film. I guess I just wanted to give a response. You, you talked about Denzel Washington, and that's one thing mm. that didn't really come up in this episode, is that this was the year of Denzel, wasn't it? I mean, he was in uh, Mississippi Masala and also Devil with the Blue Dress. So three really prominent roles that established Denzel Washington as really <laughs> one of the yeah. key uh, actor figures in the more recent uh renditions of the criterion collection so i mean just his star his star power his charisma his magnetism is definitely a big draw here and his ability to immerse himself in this historic character that uh, you know we have you know a significant amount of archival material showing him, you know, Malcolm X himself speaking and, you know, his mannerisms, his, his personality coming through. So, uh, but, but I will have to say my, my personal take on this film is that I have not yet, other than looking through the, this, the packaging have not yet popped those discs in. And it's really out of respect for the film. I really want to do Mm -hmm. it justice. You know, I want to read some of the background literature, you know, and really prepare to sort of encounter this film and the and the set itself with with all of the attention that it deserves, and kind of I, I made the calculation that in my quest to kind of. Taken as much of the new material that's uh, been released this year, I'll just kind of watch the feature films and not get too deep into the supplements. Uh, but I kind of left Malcolm X off to the side because I figured I just don't want to put that into the into the grinder, so to right, speak. Because right. uh, this feels like a major release, kind of like I even sort of made the similar comments with Double Indemnity. Mm-hmm. This is or the Piano. I think those are the big kind of monumental releases that Criterion put out this year that will be kind of looked back on as oh yeah back in 2022 is when they put those out you know those were those were the big ones and this is definitely one of the big ones I think it is you know maybe do the right thing will always be Spike Lee's kind of calling card signature title because of its mm-hmm. you know its its impact but uh, Malcolm X is kind of his Lawrence of Arabia if you will his his epic you know his, his kind of globe and culture spanning uh masterwork that uh kind of kind of tells the a full story uh in in those grand historic terms that uh that you reserve for those those big figures of history um mm-hmm. even if he's not fully recognized as such even in the same way that like Martin Luther King is i think i think his his uh his impact and his influence are are still ongoing and i think this this release actually perpetuates and prolongs the uh you know and 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 sets an opportunity for for younger viewers and and people who are absolutely just coming of age to sort of get into into that story into into his role in uh the transformation of american society so uh yeah the story is not finished yet there's there's still uh impressions to be made and i i definitely feel like this is a very worthy number one pick for the year
2: yeah, I think this is, and that's a great, uh, a great take is that this has not, um, you know, this is not dated. In fact, this is very much still a valid, uh, film. Um, and Denzel, I don't remember the year. I, I want to say it was late eighties. He had been nominated for glory, uh, for an Oscar, right? or did he win? I forget, but, um, he was, yeah, this is a really, uh, pivotal part of his, um, his career. And, uh, and yeah, and actually, I'm glad you brought up the, the the younger people because, as I mentioned, I was a young person that didn't have the context. And um, and I won't go into the supplements, but let me just say that there, this is a three-disc um, uh, release for a reason. There's a ton on here. And I did pour over all of it, and it's uh, all worthwhile. I watched the commentary, and the commentary is from 2005 um, with Spike and, and some other of his uh, collaborators. Um, and I, as I mentioned, I really like hearing... A little, little closer to that time. Of course, you're not going to get one in 1991 or 1992, um, but I think the best supplement on here is uh, the Malcolm X documentary, which is from 1972. So it's you know within living memory of his impact. And um, what I liked about that. Uh, well, first off, it's it's a great supporting piece because you see, you can watch the movie first, of course, and then you see all the speeches, and you know, you have a a, a comparison uh, perspective. Um, but it also is it's not like the documentaries now where there's you know thirty talking heads. Um, it's it's I don't know if I'd call it quite cinema verite, but mostly it just lets uh, you know the uh, Malcolm X's appearances speak for himself. Um, so very worthwhile. Um, one of the better uh, documentaries I've seen on a um, as a supplement on the Criterion Collection. So, so yeah, glad it's here. Uh, hope hope people discover it and um, hope it makes an impression.
0: Well, really enjoyed hearing your thoughts on that, Aaron. Let's go ahead and just make the transition then, uh, as we get into kind of looking ahead. Uh, the Criterion Collection has gone through transitions. You know, we talked about that, and you know, you'll hear. Uh, the take of Josh and Jordan and myself uh, after we finish this little segment. But why don't you go, <laughs> as it turns out, why don't you go ahead and lead us into just kind of a look ahead? And if you want to talk a little bit about your own personal outlook with podcasting or whatever, I certainly welcome you to give an opportunity to, to kind of look into the uh, crystal ball and tell us what you see coming <laughs> in 2023.
2: <laughs> well, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we do have some plans uh, that we are uh, proud of and so but i'm not at a point where i can actually talk about that uh it's i think you know why but uh mm-hmm. yeah. but it, it is going to be exciting i think it's going to be something cool and I, it's going to add to the um the, the value of what we what we offer so uh you pr- hopefully you know around you know uh spring i guess we, we were hoping to get it out by 2023 but uh things ha- happen so um so, yeah, we will be expanding the podcast to some degree. We'll be doing more of it, so that that's something to expect. But, um, yeah, as far as Criterion, it's been such a weird year because of the, um, you know, the Sight and Sound came out, uh, and there were so many Criterion films, so I, I imagine uh, I, I've started using Gene uh, Jean, Jean Dielman as, uh, um, instead of Simpson Kane when I say it's it's know this <laughs> type of movie. Um and that's been interesting. Um, I, also, there's, I, I, as I, I said earlier and, um, a lot of people kind of had their own takes about this is that like, there's not a, a sense of arrival in that, Hey, we're, we're diverse now. There's always work that can be done. But I think mm-hmm. at this point, um, I, I think it's going to be more maintenance for, um, uh, for criterion. So to get, uh, some of these, uh, these obscure diverse titles in front of us, um, Rather than like a correction of having not having neglected those, and I'm, I'm not saying that's what happened, I think it was really just a blind spot. But, um, but I would expect that probably there'll be some big films. I mean, there already have been some announced, um, hopefully, some box sets. But the, the biggest thing on my mind, um, and I, I don't know how what context you touched on this, but uh, there were layoffs at Criterion uh, towards the end of the year, and uh, so a lot there was a lot of concern, a lot of Everybody had a take, and um, but that's that's funny when when these things happen is pretty much everybody says uh, oh it's because uh, they didn't put enough um, I think you saw on TikTok uh, not enough Ghibli films on the on, on the channel. <laughs> um, yeah, it's I wish it were that simple. Um, one one thing I do we do know that because uh, she tweeted is uh, Beatrice Loiza. She uh, mentioned that she was one of the um, one of those that were impacted by this uh, this reorganization or layoff, whatever you want to call it. And uh, she was one of the writers, or actually the editor, uh, for the Current. Um, so it's interesting that they um, put out uh, the the best of the Current for twenty twenty two for this new year. Um, but yeah, her let, her being let go, uh, she, fortunately she's got a job. She's already at Slate, which is a good landing spot for her. Excellent writer. Um, highly recommend you go read her work on Criterion or elsewhere. But it, it, it kind of feels like to me that Criterion is um, kind of slowing down. I think they're probably getting out of the content space. So I, I'm, I'm sure the current will exist for maybe like um, Closet videos which there have been a ton this last i kind of think they might have been dumping the, the closet videos from the the archives um and then what, I, what i'm watching is uh the uh criterion channel you know obviously we don't know anything at this time but uh that gets really really complicated with uh rights and that sort of thing um and also you know what criterion license is out so we'll be watching that uh the good news is it looks like the the discs the physical media which is my preference uh, is um, okay, and uh, but I, I think you know, they are a company; they're they're motivated by profit, uh, and they should be. You know, they're they're not canonizing, um, but uh, I think we might see bigger selling titles because of that, um, because the physical media sales are dwindling, and uh, they have to stay alive in this uh, this atmosphere. And I think they will. I mean, Criterion, as far as uh, film goes, um, their brand is, you know, I, I can't. I don't see it competing with any other film brand. People equate Criterion and that Wacky Sea with brilliant films. So I think that whatever happens with, you know, in 20 years, I think Criterion will have a place. But what it looks like then, I have no idea. Um, I think maybe 2023, though, will be a period of transition to for whatever whatever that next thing is. So...
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think I think the transitional process is still kind of in in full gear. We have not reached anything that feels like a landing point, in my mind, or probably anybody else's. Uh, it's it's still a process of adaptation, of adjustment, and of just you know kind of finding the path forward. I I am encouraged when I look at the uh, upcoming titles of. Uh, or the bundles that are going to be part of the channel in mm. uh, January of 2023, starting you know tomorrow, we've got some really nice, uh, you know, packages, like the Mike Lee at the BBC and the Kurostami's childhood films. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I'm just going to be, like, right on top of those, uh, as well as a pretty solid lineup of, of uh, you know, including some, you know, on the smaller side box sets, uh, Marguerite Duras and... Um, Oh, von Trier. We kind of talked about him earlier, so it feels to me like they still have a pretty clear focus on what they want to do. But you're right, the the uh, kind of the, the the plushness, if you will. Uh, you know, I was right, looking at right. the uh, you know the booklets. Like I, I just got around to watching uh, you know, Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy and The Mikado hmm. the other day, and uh, both of those films have really nice booklets you know with multiple pages and 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 you know all the all the kind of uh, you know kind of roundedness and and I feel like you know sometimes we're just not getting quite as much of that depth of of kind of richness you know the paper stock's a little bit thinner or mm. they're doing the the fold outs rather than the booklets it, just things of that sort the the um zetterling and hanukkah box sets that came in plastic right. cases rather than slip cases so uh, that's just a it's a material reality certainly you know the heart of the matter the films themselves th- they will persist they will persevere and you know we already said, you know so support uh the the uh the artists that you that you believe in, that you feel uh, you want to, you know, you know, lift them up and and keep them moving forward, so that uh, we don't have to just settle into some kind of dark ages of mediocrity. Right. Right. So yeah, definitely. And
2: try something yeah. new. I w- is something I would mm-hmm. say to people that uh, you know when they react to, to new titles by, I haven't heard of this, I'm not going to watch it. So I, that's often the case with me, and I, I try it, and I end up loving a lot of films. So.
0: Right, right. It is. is, It's that expansion, that sense of discovery. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the the biggest... uh you know, realizations to me when when some of the negative blowback came out over the Sight and Sound list. Uh, yeah, when I see people saying, "Well, you know, John Dielman, yeah, that's, that probably is okay in the top ten, but it shouldn't be number one." It's like, you know, there's really so many more layers to what you're saying that you might not even be aware of if you're making those kind of sentiments. But it's like, do we really just want to settle for predictability, or is it so much that we need validation that my personal favorites are the ones right, that? Right one I mean I, I understand that that is the that is the sense of what happens in politics when your mm-hmm. chosen leader doesn't get elected that means you got to live under the other person and you may not be a fan of that so I I get that sense of disappointment but you know if uh, Jean dealman or some experimental or avant-garde or, or marginalized uh, voice becomes the number one, does that really cost you anything does that really right, take right. away the pleasure you've gotten from citizen kane or vertigo or kubrick or whoever you want to throw out there it's like you know the community is diversifying mm-hmm. there are younger voices i mean i'm i'm a guy in my 60s and i realize you know what the world does not revolve around the opinions of me or people my age it's like you know there's a there's another generation that's coming up they've got their own sensibilities their own perspective and i will learn from that, and value the uh, the, the insights that uh, maybe expose some of my blind spots. I mean mm-hmm. that that is a to me that's a very vitalizing and energizing uh, new thing that's developing in this uh, in this cinema fandom that I've been a <laughs> part of for the past you know however many years. Yeah,
2: yeah. It was funny sure. just just before we started recording, I was in a Twitter conversation, and, and we were talking about overrated films uh, and underrated films and i just des- i decided i really am not not i didn't just decide this today but i really don't like this that phrase underrated yep. however or overrated because it compares a film to what others think about it where i just think that um you know it should stand up to what you think about it so i i, I just don't yeah. and and plus you know for example if you love um uh, jellyfish eyes. <laughs> I'm not going <gonna, laughs> to you know, tell you that yeah. your, your taste is wrong. There's no such thing. Uh, but, but for, well, one thing I, I can't wait for people to hear Jane Dillman is the number one film. I have to watch it. <laughs> um, overrated is certainly a word that's going to be used. But um, I also wanted. I'm glad you brought that up because we are going to d- dive into the sight and sound a little bit on our next uh, Criterion Now episode, uh, and we'll also look at some of the new announcements that we've been talking about for 2023. Um, but what's interesting is, six, usually when you uh, when you have a larger body of voters, uh, I think this happened with the has happened is happening with the Oscars. Um, the the result is a little more predictable. It's it's going to be a little bit more like least common denominator. A little more mainstream, maybe. Uh, not so with BFI Voters, because Gene Dillman is the last film I would have expected to um, mm-hmm. to make the, the cut. But I, I, just, I just think that's where we are. As a, as a film body, the cinephile community sees that as not every single individual. There's 1,600, but collectively sees that as a um, valuable film. And I don't disagree. I think it's an amazing film. Not on my list, but that doesn't mean it's bad. <laughs>
0: Right, right. I mean, if there's a certain point at which you sort of accept, you know what, I might be in the minority viewpoint of, over here, but that's okay. It is perfectly okay. Jean Dielman hits the mark for a broad demographics whether it's women whether it's lgbtq people or people who are into sort of the avant-garde you know kind of front edge of innovation in cinema or they just have a particular fondness for chantal ackerman and and what she was about and and how she went about her uh, pursuing her craft i mean uh or just just the the desire to want to recognize something that is outside of the conventions of kind of narrative showbiz type of movie making <laughs> I mean th- those are all perfectly valid reasons to say you know what I'm gonna put that one in my top 10 and how the numbers played out that one made more uh, impressions uh, amongst this new expanded voter pool and I'm here for it I, I think it's perfectly Completely. fantastic yeah I'm, yeah I'm
2: fine with the list uh, so yeah and and also I, I I know we talked a little longer than we expected but Ch- Chantel a- Ackerman uh, she died by suicide since since the last list so yeah. i i just can imagine you know the validation that her her close friends family um uh, and also really all the fans and she does have a lot of fans um, so it's not always uh david lynch uh, kubrick and hitchcock <laughs> um so um, <laughs> right. so yeah i i'm i feel feel happy for them that this uh that this film is getting its due recognition and um yeah, again, but I wouldn't put it on my top 10, but kind of the same thing with the underrated, overrated. I won't complain about anybody that does.
0: No, so. no, it's a, it's a great conversation, and that's ultimately <laughs> what this all is all about, right. It's been a good time talking to you. I'm really glad that we could kind of you know fill the gap here. I'm going to go ahead and get us back into our the rest of our regularly scheduled episodes. So I'm uh, looking forward to... Catching up on Criterion now when new episodes start coming up live. And uh, thanks for taking some time out for me tonight to finish up the
2: conversation. Likewise. Happy New Year. And uh, to the listeners, Happy New Year.
0: All right well we were going to wrap up our conversation with just kind of a a little bit of a looking ahead to 2023 and we can go ahead and do that i just for some closing comments josh uh, you know you talked about getting uh, criterion channel surfing back on track again but uh, even a wish list for uh, maybe a criterion release or two for the coming year what do you what do you see looking ahead to 2023
1: you know i'm really excited for the uh, upcoming janus releases that will be Uh, coming to Criterion in the coming year. I know they're going to be doing EO and No Bears, the new Jafar Panahi film. So I'm always excited when they do that. Uh, I'm excited to see them continue to push into uh, uh, more films by women, more films by black filmmakers and other filmmakers of color. So to me, that is just uh, the, the fact that they're continuing to do this is, is very exciting. Um, And you know, I think something that I am going to be really excited to see them uh, continue to to look at is um, continuing their partnerships with some of the streamers. Uh, I mentioned that in the last uh, segment when I talked about time. Uh, I really am excited to see what other uh, releases uh, that were originals from Netflix or Hulu or uh, Amazon. could end up uh with physical releases because to me that is a uh anytime we can get a, a physical release of uh some of these digital only um films, uh to me it's just all the better um when we can get those uh in our hands. So those are those are some of the things that I'm really, really excited for.
0: Excellent. Jordan, you got a wish list for twenty
3: twenty three? Yeah, of course, man. Uh, <laughs> 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 but first, I'd like to just comment briefly. I, I love that Josh brought up a little earlier like this this whole strange disappearing content idea mm-hmm. in terms of streaming services and, and and works that are created to kind of be viewed remotely and don't even get necessarily a, a broad theatrical release and, and the sort of governing assumption that Hey, it was made by Netflix, so it's always going to be on Netflix, and it and it turns out not to be true um, for various reasons. But I think particularly interesting or and or worrisome is like Discovery's management of HBO Max recently, where where yeah. content is just sort of secretly disappearing or slipping away, and and really marquee stuff recently. I mean, I've never seen Westworld, so I don't really have a I don't really have a dog in that fight, but. I'm certainly aware of its marketing campaign and the idea that something like that can be removed from HBO Max, who it was, you know, in, in part created for, uh, is is a very strange development. Um, it's my understanding that in the case of a show like Westworld, it's not going to disappear. Uh, it's going to be farmed out to a free streaming service where it will be embedded with commercial content. I mean, commercials. So So that's sort of it's almost even worse than disappearing <laughs> in, in some way. So yeah, it's a really interesting part of the conversation going forward in terms of physical media. You know, we all, we're all aware that physical media as an entire enterprise is also shrinking, but to the extent mm-hmm. to which it still exists and I, I believe will continue to thrive even with a, maybe a smaller audience. This is certainly kind of a shot in the arm for the relevance of physical media and, um, this was a point brought up on uh, another podcast called the the film cast and the the host David Chen mentioned that like we don't really have a criterion collection for television series for mm-hmm. first for, for episodic storytelling and. And and it would be interesting to to see you know where those parameters might be really even within the Criterion collection. Obviously, they've they've done the Golden Age of Television, and they've taken an interest in the television work of you know Bergman or Kijowski or um, Fassbender. But you know what other areas of television work people have brought up? Of course, David Lynch's Twin Peaks work. You know, there. But there are there are probably. There are probably television shows that are worthy of a of a critical analysis. And if a populist work like Wally can receive attention, I, I, I'm not really sure why we'd still run up against a, a boundary for something like I'm just going to throw out something at random like Mad Men or The Leftovers, like mm-hmm. something that's a you know, it's a serious show that that has some serious writing and and uh, and would would stand up to uh, sort of a, a full package of critique. Um, so, so that would be interesting. Um in terms of just like a, a general wish for for one possible direction for the Criterion Collection, but the the bang, the the drum that I'd really like to bang is um, for further inclusion of video art that um, is made for galleries and then i mean really disappears like it's a you know for 30 days approximately you have access to this if you're f- in physical proximity to the art gallery and then in many cases you know this is not available online in any form um it's it, the physical availability of it is usually you know quite expensive um so there are, there's there's some logistics there in terms of um not destroying the market value of this work, but still maybe making it available. i would I would love to to see the criterion collection um, in terms of underrepresentation like there's a whole field of artists out there that, that that are making really good work and you know their their audience is negligible and if the criterion collection or their or through the channel they could pay attention to it like it it would really do uh, wonders for the the uh, lifespan of the work.
1: I love that Jordan. Um, I think that is such a Uh, those are the things that I, you know, I think about the Brackage pieces. I think about the Hollis Frampton works. I think about some of those, those other um, experimental films that we've gotten in the collection that have been really, to me, some of the most uh, exciting releases that uh, have just been so thrilling to get. And, you know, when I think about myself and uh, my own accessibility issues you know, right now I can't go to a gallery. I can't right. go to a theater. Um, uh, I cannot go, you know, with Memoria touring the country. Mm. That's not something that I could. I couldn't go see that in a physical theater space, mm. and it's never-ending theatrical run. Um, you know, I am great. I'm, you know, a little more privileged than others, and I have a region-free player, so I was able to import uh, that disc. But You know, there are there are these accessibility issues when it comes to things like those those video installations. Yes. There are these great, you know, virtual exhibits that you can go to for other gallery works and other things. And my wife and I have as we have been uh, distancing, we have on our vacations, we have gone to virtual galleries and we have done these things to try to expand our horizons and do these different different uh, activities. Uh, but having, uh, video galleries or, or video works to me is just a, a really great way to make these works accessible to other people.
3: Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your, your accessibility issues. Um, yeah, that's rough. But like, even, even if, you know, you have, mm-hmm. uh, your full faculties and don't have health concerns, like yeah. most of this work is taking place in cities that you don't live in.
1: Exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up uh, my uh, comments as far as looking ahead, with maybe a note of uh, you know cautious optimism, uh, mm-hmm. but recognizing some of the uh, some of the challenges that the, the Criterion Collection has been dealing with. I mean, there we haven't talked about it much on this episode, uh, or in great detail even elsewhere. But you know, there was a significant layoff that took place. Uh, you know, generated some headlines, got people wondering you know what's that all about what does that imply for the future and i think it is a, at the very least an acknowledgement that uh, you know the economy is is you know been been a little bit challenging with inflation discretionary incomes have been taking a hit. Uh, there is a lot of media available on streaming services and there's a large audience that out, is out there just kind of content to just watch whatever the streaming channels maybe send their way. So it, it may be a, a landscape that we're in where, uh, you know, you're gonna have to <laughs> maybe choose to be a conscious consumer and and support the media that is meaningful. You know, the, You know, we've already talked about streaming films that just sort of disappear but even supporting uh films that are getting a physical release uh just for the sake of perpetuating this format and and you know maintaining commercial viability, I think, is really important. You know, as I look ahead to the Criterion announcements that have already been, you know, published for the first three months of 2023, um, you know, the the schedule like in March struck me as kind of light. You know, we've got a, a Mildred Pierce, a, a, an upgrade into a 4K of a pretty venerable Hollywood classic, but you know that that Blu-ray is already pretty sufficient for my purposes got an early John Woo film, uh, "Chilly Scenes of Winter which was extremely well received. Uh, I'm not familiar with it myself, but I'll trust the judgment of people who uh, have recommended it. And, it looks and then good. of course, yeah, yeah, it definitely does. And then and also a film that hasn't really had a proper Uh, presentation because of studio interference and and the kind of things that female directors have often run into in recent decades. And then of course the David Lynch Inland Empire, which I'm sure will be a very big seller, probably the number one title as far as units moved in the month of March for the Criterion Collection. But, um, you know, the fact that they did have to let some staff go, that that was a painful cut. This wasn't uh, trimming the fat. This was, you know, cutting into some of the, the muscle that makes Criterion a, a special workplace and a, and a and a great publisher. So I don't want to be, you know, doom and gloom pessimistic. I, I do want to, you know, trust that Criterion's been at this for a long time. They, you they know how to read the market. They know how to make strategic decisions that will allow their business to prosper and flourish, but there may be, uh, you know, fewer releases, or there may be a little bit less of the deluxe Bafo presentations like we saw with the the Fellini set, the Bergman set, the World of Wong Kar Wai, etc. Uh, maybe maybe those kind of massive editions are not going to be quite as uh, frequently popping up uh in at least maybe the year ahead we'll, we'll see where that all goes but uh i am you know that the optimistic side is that I, I believe that they are very forward-looking that they are scouring all of the uh the the resources the films that are out there and they are even now planning to bring to our attention movies that uh, may be completely off our radar whether that's from filmmakers or even whole societies uh, that, uh, you know, just haven't really registered. I mean, we talked about Fayadayi, a Mexican-Ethiopian film. La Llorona from Guatemala was another release that made a pretty big impression on me uh, from this year that hasn't been discussed. But again, there's a lot of interesting and fascinating filmmaking happening in all parts of the world, Um, that uh, I think Criterion has a very important role in in, uh, elevating and and bringing into the discourse. Uh, We can also talk about the sight and sound list, which I know was another huge, you know, impact when when Jean Dielman uh, became, you know, the number one uh, film in that poll of supposedly the greatest films of all time. Um, I'm a great admirer of that film, and I'm happy that that the the methodology allowed uh, a very surprising, uh, somewhat unconventional pick to to step ahead of the citizen canes and vertigos of the world. I, I really have enjoyed uh, bad takes on all of that, but I'm not going to let that uh, stand in my way of uh, a really great conversations that have come from that that whole development. So you know, uh, there's there's a lot to appreciate, a lot to celebrate, and a lot to enjoy. And I, I thank you guys for uh, having this conversation with me and for giving us something to share with our listeners. Again, a real bummer that Aaron uh, got sort of the the plug pulled on him, literally. Uh, but we're going to find a way to patch it up and get him into this episode so that he can share with us. Uh, his take, in fact, maybe in the editing, you've already heard that piece once I splice it back in here. But for now, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up this uh, episode. Uh, Jordan and Josh, do you have any other final things you want to say, or have you pretty much spoken your piece?
3: I always just want to say that it's an honor to be on the line with you guys. Had a wonderful time, and uh, happy New Year.
1: Yeah, this this was great. Thank you for having me, and uh, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, David Jordan. This is uh, lovely.
0: Okay, well, good. Well, let's go ahead and, uh, and make a new resolution to do this a little bit more often <laughs> in the year ahead and look forward to talking movies with you guys and uh, and giving you all, listeners, something to, to plug into your earbuds and, and listen to as you go about your daily lives. Okay, so thank you for tuning in, everybody. Uh, it's been a great uh, opportunity to keep this annual tradition alive. Uh, thanks for listening in. Let us know your feedback, and we'll be coming at you real soon. Bye-bye.